Hello and welcome to another session of the Corona Committee, session number 137. We called it the Parable of Dorian Gray. First, I'd like to welcome our, how do I say, colleague, maybe presenter as well, uh, David Jungblut. He is not just a colleague, attorney, but he's going to support us today with questions and inspiration. He used to be a prosecutor and a judge, and now he works as a lawyer, and he can surely help us and give us his input in many aspects. I'd just like to briefly sketch out what we are, what we have on the agenda for today. <clears throat> First, we're going to listen to a repeat guest and a lawyer again. First, he's going to report about the uh, recent uh, written reason of the judgments showing how the justice has officially failed since March 2020. Then we have a general practitioner and her lawyer reporting about a grotesque first instant verdict against her uh, on the basis of allegedly false mask attestations already leading to mocking comments of the German state. And Dr. David Jungblug is going to show us how the um, prosecutors work and how they are subject to instructions. And as a fourth guest and also um, a member of the committee really is Dr. Wolfgang Wurst talking to us on how long the spike protein can be found in the blood after the uh, shot. And last, we have an American scientist looking about the traces um, long ago of the toxic treatments at the time of the black uh, death and the role of ethyl mercury in and aluminium in modern medicine. Maybe you wonder what, why the session is called as it is today. Maybe you know it's the only uh, novel of Oscar Wilde, an Irish uh, author who wrote the book The Image of Dorian Gray. And I think that has a very special allegory to it. Uh, as of today, Dorian Gray is an attractive young man um, who gets painted looking beautiful on the picture. He's a dandy, he's a, a person living life, loving life, and he prays to the universe or to God to stay as young as he is on the image forever and his prayer is heard. So he physically stays adolescent all the time and instead of him, his image starts to get older and this leads to him leading a more and more extreme life, doing evil things. And the more he gets onto a slippery slope, the worse is the picture. There is uh, dark scars in the face, and one can see all the evil in the face of the image, which reflects his way of life. Uh, but, however, not in his own physical uh, face, uh, but on the picture, and he ends up killing the painter of the picture, and then he really falls. And when he dies, it's fascinating to see the curse being lifted, and those who find him find a uh, 
scarred old man with a horrible face and the picture is back to its old and original bloom. And why did we decide to take this title for the session today? We see many things that are going on behind masks and behind uh, scenes. Um, for example, ruling verdicts according to the new world order and uh, by opportunism, for example, um, speaking unrightfulness and doing unrightful things by, for example, saying that the vaccinations are not problematic and the people should get their shots without anything happening. And if you look at this in more detail, you see this is a great sin, really. And we know that the people probably unconsciously know that this is uh, not the right thing. And uh, so many people who don't come out now or who are the pioneers of this movement are the ones who have to take the burden of that sin and it is inevitable it's going to catch up with people and then they will come uh, from predator to prey and that is will be shown maybe not only in the face but in the traces that they leave behind for example with the verdict in the name of the german people which is close to perversion at, of the law, at least. And um, you shouldn't bend your soul. The light should uh, be able to shine still on. And this is I, why I would like to ask everybody to think on how one can or may prostitute oneself and uh, leave your own conviction without taking damage. Maybe this was a bit post-Christmas and uh, seasonal to speak this way and maybe you want to spend a couple of thoughts on how you want to spend this new year. However, let me welcome our new, our first guest, lawyer Richard Smith. He was the main, the lead lawyer in the military appeal proceedings where we all were quite scared on the outcome and now the reason the reasoning has been published the written reasoning and you have filed a hearing appeal and maybe you can report on uh, the situation one more thing you can ask questions from the audience we've got this tool the tool is uh, it corona dash de dash F-137. Yes, okay. Well, hello everybody, um, Happy New Year, um, and thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs> now, what can I say about this nearly uh, near-apocalyptic uh, decision? Um, you've um, used so many terms. Uh, soul um, and sin, etc. It's tempting to speak about that, but if, um, I'll stick to uh, my core competence, so I speak about uh, the legal aspects. Um, it is a vaccination mandate, um, um, no matter what you call it. 
And of course, we're not, uh, we shouldn't speak of a vaccination as we presented in court. In court, the um, case is very complex and uh, we uh, made that clear. And we all realize that this might be the last opportunity here in Germany to get a positive uh, sign from the legal system that you can actually get justice here because that was the comprehensive impression after two to three years that people are excluded from the law from uh, justice if they criticize any measures uh, taken um, in the context of the COVID-19 camp uh, campaign and so we were really optimistic or I at least was I um, um, started this in uh, mid-March 2022 and when I was then invited to go to Leipzig to speak in court there and to um, uh, listen to the uh, experts and, and they were all heard and then it went over five uh, days of hearing and um, uh, the complexity we um, submitted more than a thousand uh, pages worth of documentation and the files we requested in uh, August had at the time um, volume of four, more than 4,500 pages and we uh, filed a hearing appeal um, to uh, and I um, insisted that uh, the same law, uh, judges must not uh, sit on or decide on the hearing appeal that were actually deciding on the case originally because of, because of course um, they are prejudiced and we added another um, good 220 pages. I submitted 100 pages myself, um, and Martin um, submitted more pages. And uh, these pages were necessary only to list all the uh, articles of law that we had referred to in the course of the uh, court case and um, the expert representing um, the vaccination um, victims uh, made a, a submission again so that we did everything uh, we could in order to uh, justify our hearing appeal. You can actually read it up on my website, um, I can only uh, tell anyone who looks it up, it's really worthwhile reading this written um, uh, explanation. It starts with abstract legalese, but at some stage it becomes quite concrete. And what it says is so unbelievable that we really have reached a point of apocalypse because there was a lot of evidence presented and we would not have um, found out otherwise how things happen in Paul Ehrlich Institute and uh, to, well, in, in a nutshell, if I uh, were to summarize it in a couple of sentences, the federal administrative course has completely ignored all our um, um, presentations, um, put uh, all evidence on its head, and it's really shameful to read what the, um, the court's uh, justification uh, says if I only uh, were, went through a few highlights it would take us hours here because there's so much nonsense in it that is easy to understand even for a legal um, 
layperson. Let me just give you one example here. I don't know if you read the whole thing. Um, this is uh, fringe number 236, for instance. Uh, and this really impressed me because uh, the court had, of course, problems. Um, uh, it was very difficult to get this. Um, how can you ignore an attack on um, the right to life, which is obvious, and how can you deny that it's experimental? Uh, it is obvious that there's a highly experimental substance. And uh, it has been uh, shown by uh, many um, experts involved in the uh, case. And it says here in the uh, court's opinion, the use of the vaccination um, is not for the, uh, um, used in the army for the purpose of experimental um, uh, purposes, um, but to protect the soldiers. Therefore, uh, reference cannot be made to any type of medical experiment. So it has this purpose and therefore it's not an experiment. Uh, that's incredible. Of course it's experimental, but they say it has this purpose, and therefore it's no longer experimental. That's one of the core statements here, uh, which shows this arbitrariness here. They sim I simply define any sort of purpose. Um, so I have an ex experiment, which under all objective criteria uh, is a an experiment, and then I define it um, to, be, uh, to have a purpose. It's undeniable that it's experimental. Even EMA has uh, accepted that it has been uh, presented in a large detail by um, Dr. Rerich, for instance, all the things that haven't been looked into um, in the studies. There was never a comprehensive study and um, analysis of these so-called vaccinations um, and Politik Institute, and that became quite clear uh, during the uh, hearings when uh, Dr. Menzer was heard, for instance, is not even capable of testing these substances, and they don't intend to do that. So they're not uh, testing for any toxins in the vaccines. So they don't even test the contents of the uh, injections of these jabs. And uh, those are things, as uh, Martin Schwab uh, showed, what isn't being done by the Polish Institute. So they simply sign it off. They don't test anything. Uh, we can um, get back to that later in more detail. I just wanted to speak about it um, at this point. And this is the entire um, uh, opinion submitted by the, the court. Um, and our experts are all idiots, obviously, who know nothing. But the experts of the um, uh, German army, Professor Wolf and Professor Kehl, for instance, who stated the untruth um, demonstrably um, several times in uh, front of the court. Um, they are um, uh, they are given credit. For instance, um, Professor Burkert is accused of not having made uh, certain uh, statements. Uh, well, I mean, if the court would have liked uh, to have had these statements, he was heard. They could have asked him. And uh, they uh, complained that Tom Lausen 
couldn't uh, demonstrate which um, was the source of his data um, that he demonstrated, that he uh, um, posted uh, positions to the court. Um, of course, he gave the sources. He did it also when he uh, gave a testimony in um, the German parliament. And he was there during three days of hearing. They could have asked him. So one question would have been enough. He was there. All it took was one question, and that's the way they work here. So they don't ask questions, um, and then they claim that this is a gap in um, um, the evidence. And they say, well, uh, we can't understand where this information comes from. So that's the way they act. They work here. And um, I would like to um, uh, support what you just said um, in the uh, Corona Committee. Uh, what kind of uh, crimes um, have been uh, committed here in the context of this uh, vaccination campaign. I uh, second that, and I also mentioned that to the court. Even back in uh, December, on the 5th of December, 22, I told the uh, federal administrative court and I uh, that uh, I would send them the um, criminal um, complaint by our Swiss colleagues submitted to the Swiss courts, um, and that is worthwhile reading this, um, and it's not a joke. And nevertheless, the court seems to believe that it that this is a joke. Otherwise, uh, I couldn't understand what it still says on its uh, home page. So uh, a lot of things need uh, were completely ignored. There was this uh, essay uh, by a representative of the critical uh, public prosecutors. Unfortunately, uh, she concludes that uh, criminal law is ignored here. Uh, so Article uh, 222, um, in combination with uh, pertinent um, items or um, articles of the uh, medica uh, Medical um, Medication Act, um, have been ignored. Um, and if we look at all the things, just like our Swiss colleagues did, what we need to look at here, uh, bodily harm, uh, um, serious um, uh, bodily harm, bodily harm uh, with lethal consequences, any um, legal layperson can research that on the internet. And um, you can look up the, um, the definitions of homicide and whatever. What are uh, base reasons? What is um, base motivations? What is insidious? What is gruesome? What are uh, dangerous uh, means? So simply go on, uh, just cover up everything, everything is uh, honky-dory. And other things, um, um, we'll skip those now. And if you know all that, it's really worthwhile. I know it is very tedious, um, and our Swiss colleagues said it was tedious for them to come up with all of this and to uh, send it over to the public prosecutor. Uh, I wouldn't have any uh, scruples to uh, require a public prosecutor to go through a tedious presentation. Um, and the legal situation is quite comparable between Germany and Switzerland. 
and what uh, Swiss Medicus uh, knew, and this is always quoted by uh, Paul Ehrlich Institute, how well they're internationally networked. And the uh, Swiss colleagues um, showed that very uh, well. What was known in 2020, early 2021, 2022, what should um, the um, authorities have known? There were many things that they should have known. There were um, clear warning signals that should have led to an end of the campaign, the vaccination campaign, also for the Paul Ehrlich Institute. And that is the insidious thing about this decision from Leipzig, that the campaign and the failure, the systematic failure of these authorities, all this data manipulation, the non-testing of what should have been tested, um, a failure of their legal obligation, that this has been uh, blanketed over here, uh, like as if the authorities, Paul Ehrlich Institute, uh, needed to be protected against the uh, assumption of failure. Uh, it's not an um, excuse that the judges were shocked by this and then tried to uh, close, um, uh, tie up the, uh, or to close uh, Pandora's box again that they'd opened unwittingly, um, that this kills us, um, that it is a perversion of law, and it's, it's much more than that. And I would like to mention that quite clearly here. And uh, before we start uh, talking to each other, and this really made me quite irate, I uh, looked it up again a few days ago. It still says it on the homepage of the Federal uh, Armed Forces in Germany. If you uh, look at COVID-19 vaccinations in the Army, uh, feel free to, to do that. Uh, check it yourself. It says, um, quote, just to show how they're um, fucking around with soldiers here. Um, so the appropriate uh, mix of ingredients is in, uh, important, just like with uh, the preparation of a meal. A little bit too much or too little um, uh, of a um, herb, for instance, can ruin uh, the taste. So we have an association now with cooking that really makes it um, makes your mouth water. It's similar with vaccinations. There are strict uh, quality controls and reference to clinical studies. So that doesn't happen before they are given to a, a human being. And it continues, quote, if you simply take your soup in a restaurant, you may also use uh, the vaccination and AIDS. Um, there's another tasty ingredient. Salt, fat, sugar, and water can be found in either. Any worries concerning the mRNA are pointless. About 150 million times uh, this was um, the jab was given to people. Well, we know what the result was. There is hardly a better vaccination um, that was tested more. Uh, in a field test, it says here in black and white. Um, it's on the homepage of the armed forces. Just 
www.bundeswehr.de Just Google it. It's a very long domain name. Uh, Impfung, just a second. I would recommend and uh, Google Bundeswehr um, COVID-19. We'll link it in the Telegram channel, then people can look it up. Well, Bundeswehrimpfung, um, Impfpflicht, and, and you can then see what they have to say on it. I can send you the link, or I can send it to Corbyn. Yeah, he can post it then. So that shows what's what's happening here. And I discussed it months ago with a colleague. It was quite obvious to me that this is really um, insidious to um, say this to an, uh, a naive um, population, an unsuspecting population. Um, and everybody has to know how uh, much underreporting there is. And people um, believed this, of course, and that's really insidious then. And you don't really have to go deep into uh, um, le the legalities of everything. Um, if everybody tells you, if the authorities tell you it's safe and then people believe that, that is really insidious. And um, now that you uh, speak of sin, that's really like a revelation. Um, murder is no longer a sin. Uh, so human life uh, doesn't have to be protected anymore. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if uh, soldiers die off. And so anybody who feels uh, affected here because they suffer from a vaccination uh, damage or have family members who have that kind of um, vaccination damage or uh, even died, they can get, take download um, the complaint uh, sent to the Swiss uh, public prosecutor. They can download and send it to the German public prosecutor. And um, because you can argue that what the Swiss authorities had to know, Public Health Institute had to know as well. So uh, you can find all the arguments on my uh, um, website, particularly um, on the 7th of July, we listed all the things that the um, court needs to know, uh, what the authorities had to know, um, and it was incredible uh, that the court um, corroborated and, and sustained this obligation uh, to uh, acquiescence. Uh, just imagine if a federal um, court had said it's so dangerous that no soldier must be obliged to take this. That is basically the requirement of the uh, army law. Um, no soldier has to uh, accept this kind of thing if it is entails a danger, a danger to their life and limb. And that's what we had. But that would have affected the share prices of the manufacturers of COVID-19 vaccinations. And that would, of course, also have been a, um, a, a very dramatic um, uh, slap in the face of the German government. So uh, the court did an incredible uh, a lot of damage here. And that's why we did all we, uh, we went to these lengths to uh, provide all these uh, this evidence to the court and they had all the arguments they needed in order to do that um, and they refused to do that so on um, the 
eve of the uh, on the evening of the third uh, day of hearings i felt that we were about to win and then on the morning of the fifth day i um, had a very queasy feeling because i felt that things had uh, taken the wrong turn and that's the way it happened well we have a question from the audience going whether that during the hearings there were indications that the uh, experts on on behalf of the soldiers were not taken seriously and the court did not want to hear the evidence you said until the fourth day there was no point nothing pointing to that uh, but maybe you picked it up on the fourth day already no the um, signs started accumulating on the on the fourth day uh, particularly it became quite obvious that the questioning of the representatives of the Polytech Institute um, uh, was being influenced so that they're hearing so um, the team was um, um, in hearing Ms. Oberle um, who uh, was responsible for um, methods of statistics. Um, the methodology was um, okay, but what we uh, found was that it was completely uh, used in a completely wrong way. And the result was that even if you have a very high number of uh, deaths, you will never have a statistical uh, relevance. And so the judge kept uh, repeating and it sounded like an L, uh, LNP um, programming uh, do you have one more question and it uh, seemed to intimidate uh, the other side and it was obvious it's difficult you have to have seen it yourself um, and to uh, speak about it as a, a witness there um, there are really limits to what you can describe there were so many it's just a general impression there were no um, um, points that um, could be made in the context of Tom Lausen's presentation uh, maybe it was so uh, forceful that um, the um, other side had uh, nothing to say to this when uh, Dr. Bhakti uh, made a statement then uh, the other side said, well, that this, uh, that he is a bit um, um, an elderly person who's no longer been um, actively working for years. And of course, from the point of view of the army, um, it was clear that they tried to shatter the um, credibility of these experts, but we couldn't see that from the judges. They actually asked good questions. Even um, subsequently, they uh, in writing, they uh, asked the right questions. They asked them, well, uh, what about um, vaccinations in the past? Did you ever have the same drastic consequences as you have uh, with the people who refused to um, get the uh, COVID uh, vaccinations? That was a good question, an important question. So why such uh, severity in the response? All soldiers know, and everybody probably knows, that soldiers who uh, ignored this order to get the vaccination um, that depending on their status, um, they were fired. So um, uh, soldiers who had signed up for four years, they were fired immediately. And um, um, soldiers for life um, were um, criminally uh, prosecuted for failing to execute orders. That's the worst thing you can do. And um, that never happened in previous vaccination campaigns. And that was confirmed by the army. So they never had this brutal 
um, response in the past. So it was quite obviously clear that uh, the uh, leadership of um, the army did everything they could to uh, get every soldier vaccinated. So there was obviously massive pressure exerted on every soldier and um, anyone who uh, wouldn't get the vaccination was uh, ostracized. So if you want to uh, submit a claim against um, any um, measures, COVID-19 measures, uh, you can always refer back to the file submitted to the case in, in Leipzig. It says it has it all. If you find something that we didn't mention, please let me know. But you'll really have to look uh, long and hard. I think we really got everything in there. But before I uh, keep talking now, I don't know. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for all that pre-work. Um, I think the criminal charges will be the next round really to go for. As we said in the last session, I think it's time to counter-strike in the form of criminal charges. That's quite cost-efficient. They don't cost anything. This was the big uh, setback in all these administrative court uh, proceedings that they um, are chargeable and the insurances didn't want to pay because they said it's no uh, point in um, <clears throat> in winning and uh, criminal charges are quite easy to file you just have to stick to the truth and to the facts and that the prosecutors have to see what they do with this which is a different story altogether Okay, uh, you mustn't be uh, too timid either. Um, if uh, you think that uh, you have to uh, turn to the Chamber of um, uh, Lawyers, well, and if you want to prosecute us, well, I'd be um, happy to take it on because if a pros public prosecutor uh, turns against us, well, um, it'll backfire on them because I won't be their fool. I won't um, suffer this being put on the head. I'm better informed than the public prosecutors. That's exactly what we're seeing now also with the guest who will come in later. Dr. Young is uh, made a predator really here. And how, the, how right that is or wrong, um, this is something that we have to see. We are being attacked with a number of legal issues and it's uh, long overdue really to uh, uh, get active and not just to defend but uh, take attack ourselves and you said this in last hearing as well apparently the judges are starting to react to the external influences and as long as they only come from the sidelines or external services and so on they react to that but if they're confronted with criminal charges and a certain public i could imagine that one or the other may start thinking at least what that mean and what that may lead to is a different story perhaps but first of all all my uh, respect for these proceedings um i say that from my own perspective that i was 
not very motivated to take these charges on because I felt what the outcome would be, but it was like you, you had all the arguments and you thought um, you may change things and you may believe in your own arguments, but if you look at it soberly, if this agenda is being pushed through, then the respective people are put to the respective positions and wherever things may be difficult, where the same the first stone may drop, they take action in order to stop everything from collapsing. Of course, that is sure uh, in this kind of situation. However, still it's important to do this kind of thing, to document what happened. And uh, now the question is how to get from reaction to action and turn the table round, because otherwise we're going to have a, d a defending war. Um, uh, fighting back the the shots, fighting back the criminal charges and so on, and that's not going to lead us anywhere. And that's why, of course, it's difficult to say that, but your um, proceedings have uh, shown what the procedures behind the scenes are, who takes effect where, and who influences what. I don't think there's Spiritus Rector who has all the... Uh, sources at the hand, but it's informally. They all kind of know what they should do, and if they don't, maybe that uh, federal state that uh, from the night uh, of the fourth or fifth hearing, they get a respective information. And I think that's the most important point of this kind of proceedings, to show these kind of things, to show that in transparency and uh, by that, also document that this has nothing to do with the rule of law and don't speak about democracy in that sense. Um, maybe one more point. Uh, well, go, go ahead. I have another point. Well, because the options are all available, they are all on the table. And I was very happy that the Swiss uh, did such a thorough job because, um, in parallel to our um, lawsuits, they um, came up with their own lawsuit and they said uh, that it took them uh, nearly a year, a lot of weekends and holidays, and then they submitted it um, uh, to the public prosecutor and then nothing happened. And then in November, they decided to take it public. I could have told them ahead of time that uh, this uh, won't work differently in Switzerland than in Germany. You can submit a um, uh, you can file a criminal complaint, but don't you expect this to have an effect unless, and that's the lottery game here, it could happen that you hit on a, a public prosecutor who has the courage uh, to um, uh, prosecute, well, whether he will long be a prosec public prosecutor after that is a different question. Uh, these mafia structures, like in Italy, there were people who were willing to take on the mafia, um, and they knew that they uh, lived a dangerous life, um, so where um, the motorway was blown up uh, or another public prosecutor was gunned down in the uh, city center someplace. But they knew that's part of the job, otherwise you don't need to be a public prosecutor or a judge. So a judge who fails when it comes um, to it is almost like a deserter. He heard the first um, uh, shot a gunfire, um, then throw his gun away and runs off. Then this is the time where they should have shown their colors with all the consequences. The crucial point, in my view, and this is why I don't think it's, I think it's just hopeless or 
point to appeal to any judges and prosecutors now. They had three years of opportunity to do that. And this is simply a lot of staff that you can't carry on working with. They failed, and that means um, they are not fit for the job as it is written in the law. Full stop. And I think these appeals to uh, prosecutors or judges um, are a bit strange in my point of view. I think we have to find clear words and make clear to these people that they are not qualified to do the just. Uh, probably I, I, I got my own criminal charge for that now. And, uh, but, well. Yeah, well, I know if you tell a uh, um, judge that this is a perversion of justice, then of course it's immediately considered libel. And I um, also told the judge that it is um, um, unacceptable for them to have been ever appointed judge. Um, you don't make friends that way, but if you don't, um, uh, if you're not willing to go down that road, then you're not a good lawyer either. Maybe a word on the um, Italian judges who were um, investigative judges mostly, and uh, they seem to be a complete failure in this case as well. So it's a kind of double structural problem that we have here. We could say in the past that the German prosecutors are functionally too dependent, but this seems to be the same case in all Western European countries, including Italy, who were even tougher in their verdicts, and uh, the legal side doesn't say anything. And, uh, yeah, well, Renate Holzeisen uh, told us about this, and uh, she talked about this mistreatments that had been legally prescribed um, and were charged criminally, and uh, simply nothing happened. We, we, we should uh, find out what happened to them, whether um, that has been dropped or whatever. Well, there was some activity to be seen, at least. Yes, this is a proposal I'd like to make uh, to the uh, law, to the lawyers. I, I did that myself, for example. I filed a case um, against parliamentarians, for example, and uh, of course that was dropped. But everybody can do that. Everybody can file a criminal case. Uh, quite simple. Take a piece of paper and send it to your attorney with that uh, criminal charge they developed from uh, Switzerland. I say this very inspiring. I see the um, I see a number of uh, crimes committed here and you should investigate and that's enough. Um, as you know, the pro prosecutors can simply take their assumptions from the news. And um, we've heard this from some who were courageous, of course, to um, in, in certain limits. Um, it is an opposition that has to be seen as limits, uh, otherwise she'll get disciplined if they speak out the whole truth. Um, but I'm not uh, so restricted, and after all what I've been through, I'm not so much attached to my um, profession as a lawyer. I'm not going to give back my certificate, but 
Um, well, if that were it, if they would take my certificate away, so what? I wouldn't care too much. I, life will go on. And this is a will to the risk to take, not just stick with your uh, with your status, if I say this and that and that could happen, and well, a star might drop as well. And uh, this is something that I don't, I don't want to be easygoing, but <clears throat> uh, this is where we can get them, by the way, David. If we don't just say something, but we can give, prove the facts uh, of what we say. And this is why I'm not scaring away for any argument and confrontation. And if the law is perver perverted, well, it's okay. Everybody can stand in front of God and say, I was a victim of justice. This is nothing to be ashamed of. But the uh the uh predators uh they are the ones who um have the perpetrators they have the sin they carry on they carry on uh with the party and the federal government and so on and um it's this the people who suffer and this is a karma you can't evade well that takes us back to Doreen gray basically but at the end of the day that may be a question of uh, your personal attitude vis-a-vis -vis your profession. I can't really understand this, but we know it from earlier uh, times that when I work in the justice system, if I know that the work I do is wrong for certain reasons or isn't in line with what I learned or what I really um, meant to achieve when I started studying and when you got your um, license as a lawyer or uh, were appointed a judge, that a large time, a, a large part of your life is invested into something that's nonsense. The only thing you get out of it is good money, maybe a bit of uh, social status because of the uh, position you have, but that's it. And so I find it very difficult to understand how you can actually live with this burden. Uh, never um, think of uh, the guilt question. Um, how can you live with the fact that you go to your office day after day after day and you know that it's wrong? Never mind the guilt that you're accumulating here. That's a different question. You really have to have a uh, large ability to uh, of self-denial, which is uh, nearly a, um, might be a psychopathological thing, but it's it's also difficult. That's that's my homegrown psychology here that I do. If you find that, you really have to wonder how can you reach such a personality because um, it's not a, such a difficult thing to recognize that uh, things are going wrong in what you're doing with your life and nevertheless you keep going. And if you were able to reach people at that level, it might be the most um, effective way because it really uh, touches on people's own um, ex existential questions. But you'd have to ask a, a psychologist rather than a legal expert on how to affect that. But even if you use criminal complaints, I think this uh, will be ineffectual, really. Uh, it will be rejected by the other side. I think that a judge does not only have corona cases, I suppose, so he can 
base his work on other things, for example. So I would have problems if I had to rule cases um, so far away from the evidence. My personal um, situation to that uh, experiment I do, I say um, it's an it's not an experiment because I don't want to show anything, so it may not be a study if I don't have the respective mindset. So this is something that is so far away from any logics as if I would kind of ignore all laws of physics. And uh, that is, I think, a big issue. And that's what I said in the beginning, the people will have to ask and answer these questions because these things have consequences. It's not just uh, ru ruling a verdict which has no effect in reality. It affects people who have to take the shots now or like our next guest who uh, is threatened to go to prison. That is quite irritating. Well, particularly if all the um, um, these things come to pass, this really means that uh, society will collapse. And this means that we're all affected uh, as society. Do we really want to grow old in a society where this sort of thing um, is possible? Remember, um, just imagine 20, 30 years down the uh, road, uh, somebody uh, might come along and uh, jab me when I'm not no uh, longer able to judge this, maybe. So that's a risk. We have to get rid of these structures now. And this is only possible by rejection, not a legal rejection but or objection, but by objecting to what's happening here as society, as a society. And that is the success of this court case in Leipzig. Um, at the end of the day, we did win because now, and I'm not cynical about this, we showed to the world with this law case that here in Germany, it has become impossible since 2020 to be heard by an ordinary court of law. And everybody has understood that. We've really documented this for history. The soldiers who were there did understand, and they uh, said it in the last um, meeting of the Corona Committee, that judges of a federal court of justice were laughed at by the audience, largely soldiers. I have a question. Has this ever happened before, that somebody where national law failed and they couldn't do it in their own uh, country, that they went to the European court? Has that ever happened? Yes, of course it has happened, but we all know uh, there's actually a study on this. The European Court of uh, Human Rights, it's uh, obvious. There are so many judges in, in, in this court who uh, are uh, linked to um, a, um, a certain sort of organization. Of course, we could uh, take this case to the federal um, constitutional court and we could also submit, um, uh, this is the precondition to then turn on to the human, uh, European 
Court of Human uh, Rights, and uh, people have done that in the past, and uh, from Germany too. And they did win as well. Win as well. And the Constitutional Court uh, may have said no, and the European Court of Human Rights has then sustained the complaint. That has happened in the past, but currently I discussed it with my client. Now, to submit a constitutional uh, complaint with this constitutional court, well, I think it's better to sit down and, and smoke a cigar together, even though I'm a non-smoker. It's a pure waste of time, because everybody is um, singing from the same song sheet here. And uh, it's always uh, the federal administrative courts referring to the constitutional court. But that would take us to Strasbourg straight away. If you can assume that the constitutional court will reject it as well, then you can go to Strasbourg. Yes, but I've had my experience as a lawyer. I don't um, um, put much faith in the um, in Strasbourg either, uh, not because of this uh, court case, but. Um, um, effective um, uh, protection of uh, of the law, I don't think so. You can't expect uh, to have a good uh, chance in Strasbourg. It's a lottery game. And now um, where we stand is that the federal uh, administrative court has uh, given the armed forces a, a deadline by March on our um, uh, hearing complaint um, and that we will get a final decision in April. And uh, maybe there's going to be a turnaround, you never know, but um, that's the prospect. Uh, they're just waiting until uh, things die out. But, um, so this campaign no longer uh, runs. There was a bit of a confusion about this, whether it's been terminated or not. Some said it's great. It is over, but that doesn't seem to be the case really. Could you, do you know what the situation is? Yeah, well, the status is this. The uh, requirement to give proof of being vaccinated, um, which is a um, requirement to accept the vaccination, um, that um, has petered out. The, the um, requirement to tolerate a vaccination is still um, in place. Now, what has uh, changed is that um, the various authorities are no longer, um, must no longer require staff to get vaccination. But the monitoring, um, which we um, uh, complained about um, in um, July. Um, nobody cares about that in the armed forces. There's the uh, armed forces dashboard on incidences, and you can see um, it uh, was already a uh, subject of comments from the um, from Parliament. There's a dashboard of the armed forces, and there at the top, so there's the population at large, different age uh, groups, and the, the armed forces vaccinated uh, to 95-96% uh, have the highest incidence. That's a joke. So the armed forces should have said, we've known that uh, since the middle of last year. Um, that's proof. It's not only helpful, it's actually um, promoting uh, the infection. And then you have to stop the vaccinations, the campaign. And the court knew of all this, um, all the different sources, the admission in front of the um, EU parliament that there's a negative 
uh, effects, um, many other things have been admitted, have been proven, and that's of no interest to the courts. But that's the a positive thing. Um, the judgment has been so poorly justified that even a, a legal layperson can understand it. I was um, expecting the uh, opinion to be so well worded that nobody notices um, that it's nonsense. But no, it's so obviously nonsense. Just read it. Um, you have to. Um, um, have a, a bit of stamina because the best comes at the end, just like with a good movie. So it's only the second half, not towards the, uh, the very end, and then go through it a paragraph by paragraph, number by number, and you'll see it. And if you want to compare it to what we had to say on it, you find it on my homepage. All the detail is really very, very relevant, quite pertinent. And that uh, justifies any um, legal complaints, um, any criminal complaints. Um, I could have done that with the Public Institute. And I wonder, why do I have to do that? Why don't the public prosecutors do that? Everybody can read that. Does, do, do I have to do everything? I hope that this inspires people out in the audience. And can I just ask a question? This topic and the question came up from the audience as well. The problematic design of these uh, so-called approval studies with the early unblinding and so on, was that uh, addressed by the judges? Well, we um, submitted it in a detail. They um, know about this, um, the um, deblinding, Biontech, Pfizer, etc., that they violated their requirements. They know that, and that um, EMA would have had to retract uh, the uh, limited license, um, and um, the opposite happened. Now there is an unlimited license, and that's what uh, Dr. Rupert uh, said so point, uh, poignantly. Um, all these uh, authorities uh, were obviously only created to fuck people around. This is why I uh, publicly answered a question recently about the other vaccinations that you get normally. And I answered that I'm of the opinion that now you can't depend on the, on the uh, authorities anymore. <laughs> they uh, simply do what the producers want them to do. That means we're not protected by the authorities. And this is why I, for myself, and I wouldn't recommend any of my friends to take any vaccination. At the moment, there is a deep distrust um, against this. I was an official doctor. I ran vaccination campaigns. I wasn't an anti-vaxxer. But that trust is completely evaporated. And now they're coming up with mRNA vaccinations everywhere and how fast they are. We don't know what they are all trying out. So there's no trust at all. And this is something that the pharmaceutical industry must know. They have no future if they fool us that way. And very ruthless, totally ruthless, taking us as guinea pigs. They shouldn't assume that they can sell anything to us. 
Where don't believe them? And I know doctors who are completely un unsure about, they wonder whether they can still administer the old traditional uh, vaccinations. It's a risk. It's a risk. So, if we still had the rule of law, then the people uh, in positions of responsibility in these authorities at EMA and everywhere, they would have had to be um, um, arrested and legal uh, criminal proceedings would have to be prepared. They should all be replaced and one should see how to get the uh, transparent form of vigilance that people can depend on. All vaccinations have certain risks and we always balance the risk and the benefit. And um, for example, if we have rabies for someone who works in the forest, you may wonder whether it makes sense or not if you are bitten by an animal with rabies, it's tough, but, and uh, tetanus as well, it's a horrible disease, and you don't want it, but what you have is uh, what protects us, and how's that uh, protected, and if we don't do that with the shots now, why should we be able to assume that they'll do it with other shots? Well, mate, that's a missile as well, um, very early on, back in May, that one mustn't simply trust the pharmaceutical um, industry because I couldn't expect the judges to be informed here. I went into a bit more detail and I uh, quoted um, a number of different publications indicating that all of these pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers are um, um, have their own burden to carry. Well, they do rational choices, as they call. They calculate the fee of any fine when they calculate the price. And when they are punished, that they have to come up with other departments, transparency and compliance. And so they say, yes, yes, we do. And while they do that, when they were uh, when they were ruled out, they started with the next uh, thing already. There's a good graphic showing how many part of the profit went to pay fines and fees and punishments. That's five, six percent only. Yes, we could keep discussing this for six, seven hours, but that's an important point. It's also written in black on in black and white that the quality of uh, 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 the, the, the body responsible for the quality of the vaccinations is the vaccination committee and that they had recommended it. And I uh, mentioned that in uh, May or June before the 7th of July, that this um, vaccination committee is um, prejudiced as well, that it has members who have excellent connections to the pharmaceutical industry. And that is completely ignored. Um, all of this is ignored. So just to uh, make a comparison, if a uh, town council is in session. The lowest uh, level of administrative um, um, structure and only one member is prejudiced, then the decision taken by the town council is null and void. But if we have this uh, vaccination committee and there are different uh, people who represent the pharmaceutical com uh, uh, industry and they say, yes, great, more, give us more of it. Well, then nobody cares about that, and, and the Court of Ju uh, Justice doesn't care, the Administrative Court. So um, they knew full well that the um, uh, uh, vaccination committee could not be unprejudiced because there were prejudiced members, several.
Well, they are appointed by the government, aren't they? Or oh, by the pharmaceutical industry via the government. Yeah, but not even with the parliament where there would be a kind of opposition. And it's like the ethics commission as well. That's ridiculous as well. All of these are just uh, court fools, that's all. No, I don't want to um, advertise any books, but um, all the network behind us, the uh, politicians are only the executive uh, organ, all the various foundations that are in the background and all that um, goes with it. There are incredibly powerful networks, very old networks. Um, what we can see now is that the facade um, has collapsed. It's never been uh, more transparent than today. Those are old networks uh, that have been around for a while, but what they're capable of, we've seen over the last couple of years. Uh, so, um, I saw what you did, Mr. Wodak, in the context of um, the uh, swine flu and the bird flu, etc. Yeah, before, and um, Mr. Stürer, who is one of the TV stars now, he is allowed to go to the TV. He used to be responsible for the WHO, who came up with that uh, uh, with that bird flu uh, stuff, and who brought us Tommy Flu. That was Mr. Stürer. I don't believe a word in what he says. He went to Novartis after that, and now he's sent in and gets to the opposition and changed completely and holds consciousness and so on. I don't believe a single word, sorry. Well, um, I can, um, I get the impression that Mr. Lauterbach is listening in once in a while. Well, maybe he can't differentiate anymore, coming up with a question of doubt. Well, people say, oh, why didn't you warn us? Uh, God, why didn't you want us? He did, because he made Lauterbach a minister. How can you believe anything of that man? He's so incompetent, incompetent, and he's lied so much. So I really wonder at this point, it's really um, uh, makes you despair. I met a, um, um, a friend uh, some time ago, um, and I didn't want to talk about politics, but we started about talking about our foreign minister, and my interlocutor said, well, she's doing very well, and I continued warning, uh, talking about football and the weather, because it's hopeless. People are asleep with their eyes wide open. And they watch the daily news every day, and it's really like, uh, if you watch mainstream media all day, you get a a good picture, you know. She, and she represents uh, Germany, the country of poets and um, philosophers abroad, and she can't talk a straight sentence that's so shameful. I think I will um, we'll, um, uh, apply for English citizenship or something so I can refer back to Shakespeare, but it's really um, painful, it's embarrassing. Uh, that uh, someone like that represents uh, our government. Um, but of course, you have to make sure that uh, um, lawyers don't do the wrong thing. But you have to, um, you, you, everybody can submit a criminal complaint, but you can't just make a complaint, uh, a statement. Um, you have to give proof of what you say. So um, that's what uh, you will find in the criminal complaint in uh, Switzerland, from Switzerland, if a proper prosecutor ignores those arguments, it's ill will to ignore them. And that is something that we can 
access free of charge and that you can simply make available uh, as a PDF. Maybe we, we can put this online as well so that um, this is maybe uh, with an introductory letter or something which we can refer to. I think it'd be good that many people can get active here. Well, uh, you have to send it by mail, by snail mail, um, ideally a registered letter. Well, maybe you could uh, send uh, a scan or send us a copy so that we can collect them and uh, maybe publish them somewhere, all the criminal charges that the people send in so that you can see where you can do things better or improve things maybe or add things. So we really have to make it rain criminal charges. And I think Paul Ehrlich Institute is mature. What they did uh, stating also on a request that it stays in the muscle and nothing happens, it's uh, pure madness, it's stupidity. And the toxicity of the spikes uh, was presented in a big uh, scientific study, January 2021, they said how dangerous the spikes are, that they uh, lump the uh, thrombocytes, that they produce gigantic cells. They published this and the boss was there, everybody was there, all the, the management was proud of it, of this publication. And at the same time, they, sh they vaccinate the people to produce exactly these spikes. And then they say, no, it stays in the muscle. So it's so obvious that they lied to us and they haven't corrected it. It's bad stuff. Well, and the armed forces are so interesting here. That's what uh, this uh, case showed. We presented this in writing and orally. Um, uh, Professor Dr. Wolfel, uh, the uh, head uh, physician um, at the armed forces, that he was uh, involved in the publication uh, of March 2020, where the lie of asymptomatic uh, infection um, was um, made evident. Um, that was something that we complained about and um, the court uh, didn't care about it. We heard to a number of lies here. And if you believe that's uh, just a, a trivial um, misdemeanor, if you lie to a federal court, that is a misstatement um, uh, in uh, court, uh, that is not a misdemeanor. And, uh, of course, they tried to manipulate the court of law that way. And the consequences are what we've got, because that's the only thing that the court believed they still had. Uh, there's a relevant residual efficacy even for the Omicron um, variant, and that is um, sufficient to carry this experiment, which is none. And it was only a question of the efficacy at the end of the day. And uh, even in the armed forces, I have only, I was only able, uh, able to compile fragments, but was I, why was I able to research um, and my team? There were seven people who died in the armed forces due to the vaccination. 
Nobody died of COVID. Um, the armed forces say that two did, but they don't say whether they were or weren't vaccinated because that's data protection. Um, so if somebody dies of COVID-19 is not protected by data protection, but uh, if somebody dies uh, of COVID or not, that is uh, subject to data protection. So you can uh, say anything you want, any lie you want to court, doesn't matter. Um, uh, Presumably, there were 6,000 um, uh, COVID cases in the um, armed forces. We looked into this um, and referred to Professor Burkert that there was a um, uh, a very popular way of camouflaging COVID uh, uh, vaccination uh, damage to call it simply long COVID. And um, they had to admit in uh, court, in front of a federal court, that they um, were lying. And those were the, the people uh, responsible for this. They had uh, committed crimes and they were defending themselves. That's what it was all about. The best thing would have been if they had uh, um, presented in court, um, hat in hand, saying, sorry about this, uh, we made a mistake. Well, at, at least I don't want to accuse myself, so I won't say anything. Or um, uh, at least to make a confession there, but they were relying on their uniforms. They have, of course, a big ego, um, but it backfired big time. So it was a bit of a disaster uh, what happened there for the armed forces and particularly for Baal-Ehrlich Institute. They can really shut down this uh, authority, open up a new one. That would be have a healthy effect if they did. Drosten as well. If uh, these people had been anywhere and hadn't said anything, uh, we wouldn't have had a pandemic. Now it would have been quite um, rather quiet now. And the world can see the consequences. We're really looking forward to seeing what is coming down the line. But I see um, um, that our uh, population will collapse and uh, supply chains, etc. What? Who will uh, do all that when people die, get ill and die? Absolutely. Well, David, I think you had a question. Maybe uh, I have a question um, that may be a bit uh, too much effort, but because you said it's basically the end of the line for you now. So if it uh, doesn't make sense to take it to um, the uh, Constitutional Court or to Strasbourg, I would uh, uh, think that it's a pity. Um, well, of course, the uh, Constitutional Court, we can't rely on them, of course, but we could take that uh, stage. And it's about um, showing the structures and the connections. Now that you've got that far, I would think it's a pity if the European um, uh, Court of Human Rights, um, if that wasn't involved, it would be nice to see what their decision would be in such a situation, I don't have much hope, any hope at all, really, that anything will change for the better there. But uh, it would be a lost opportunity if you stopped now and said, OK, um, we, we uh, throw in the towel now because there's no point anyway. Now, I have no experience with that uh, court. And I know, of course, that the positions are uh, judges are appointed appropriately, of course, but it is a lit, little bit more pluralistic in terms of the um, um, home countries, not only EU, but other countries as well. I uh, had 10 years in electing the judges. There is the parliamentarian committee that elects the judges, 
and the candidates come from different countries and every country has to be represented and there's a couple of them applying and the parliament elects them and now there's um, 47 member states that's big europe uh, russia was in that ukraine was in that and all the balkan states are in this so really here there are judges who don't simply blindly follow the eu politics and there are states uh, quite critical states as well and maybe one would have a chance here to give them opportunity who are there and want to take that opportunity it's good people experienced judges that there would be an opportunity maybe for something to happen so that there is at least a conflict becomes visible saying that way that a parliamentarian from the parliamentarian committee may ask where what about the process where is it and how's it going? I think this is something that one should try, at least. Well, I think uh, two things are uh, still helping us. Revolution and Judgment Day. And as it's difficult uh, to get the masses to um, start a revolution, I rely on Judgment Day. And of course, we don't have the decision on the uh, uh, hearing complaints. Um, so maybe, who knows? Do a crowdfunding. Perhaps. But if uh, Professor uh, Hubbard ever got uh, one of the uh, such a, a picture like Dorian Gray, I uh, would like to see what it looks like now. I think he's already uh, harmed by what he's done already, and to submit the thousandth uh, piece of evidence that he has failed, uh, even though he was, I think, appointed to fail. Um, and to eliminate um, judicial control. It's a question of statistics, really. Well, of course, it's a cost uh, question and a nerve issue as well. So I don't want to simply stand on by the sidelines and tell others what to do, but I think it would be interesting to see how these institutions act, because as uh, Mr. Wodegam just said, that they are staffed differently, I don't know with whom, but the European Council initially, so not the Council of the European Union, but the European Council initially positioned itself um, against a uh, vaccine mandate because that would um, trespass fundamental rights. And this is a body completely differently staffed um, with these 47 countries. So this might be a different situation. And I would think it's interesting to see this. And as far as the Constitutional Court is concerned, I think it's important to uh, say names, and this is why I like to hear names uh, of people who came forward in the proceedings now. It's not only Mr. Harvard on the Federal Constitutional Court, as others, if four or five say they don't, um, then that's it. But it's important, and I don't know the names, but the names have to be uh, made public. So it's not only Mr. Harvard. Uh, although he is in the focus at the moment, at least in that Senate. Yes, that's the problem that we have as well. There's so many people who got guilty in uh, the legal system, in the federal public, in the politics, in the state politics, in the RKI, in the school administrations, everywhere. And then nobody wants to um, clear this up. 
the truth is not only a sin, this is up to God to judge, but um, a lots of illegal actions as well with uh, criminal uh, charges. Um, all these, uh, all, uh, we should create uh, something uh, like a, a prison island, like Manhattan. So, yeah, and the people are offenders and victims at the same time. And uh, at least some of these got their shots as well. That doesn't make things easier. So biasing is a question here. So in the corona context, nobody is biased because, not biased, because uh, um, either you're on one side or on the other. So by definition, everybody is biased. And if they got their shots, it's quite clear what side they will tend to, um, even if it were only for their own interests of not being wrong and mistaken. So I, it was very difficult to get out of that, I think. Wilfried, um, thank you very much. I um, must say we have the next guests in the line waiting who want to talk about this uh, very, very irritating verdict. And uh, you're, of course, invited to stay with us. I thank you. And it's very good um, that you gave us this update. I think what David said could be interesting, and maybe you will think about it just for documentation purposes. But of course, you have to ask the question whether it's worth it, worth it uh, taking the time and just uh, hitting the rock. But it's great that you gave us this update. So is there any closing remark you want to make? <laughs> Good question. Well, just, just this, perhaps. It was important for me. After 7th of July, I was sick for two weeks for the first, for all the time since I've worked as a professional. That's how hard it hit me. And what motivates me to carry on with other priorities now, I, uh, I, um, I paused my whole private life uh, for these this time this year. I worked day and night, holiday and weekend because it was so complex and so much work in the team. I'm not going to work that way anymore. I want to come back to life and have leisure time. A lawyer is entitled to that as well. Um, so the point is what you said initially, they won't get around God. And in that sense, I personally can say without talking about anybody concrete, I don't want to be uh, charged. I just say, let them do these assholes. They won't get around God. It's illusion. And uh, for me, as a human being, I could uh, carry it on like uh, Dorian Gray, Wittrock, Kammer, and so on. Uh, that the people have forgotten the healing of their souls and they are they've lost this and losing this has dramatic consequences this is something that one could talk about but it's a very um, anti-spiritual uh, topic and uh, atheistic public and many people will run away when they hear these words but i think it is important that people have to remember that they are souls they have a soul life and um, this is important well, this um, 
aspect of salvation is so important um, that we must not dispense with it. If we dispense with it, then we come hollow for life and we'll never get it back. I really like this and uh, there are some uh, religions uh, that introduce confession and the purpose of that is to continue living even though you've done evil and um, if you admit to it um, and then you can go on well as I understand God God is love and he can forgive anything which is something I can't grasp as a human being but God can and uh, but the human has to uh, beg for this. And if they don't, and if they are in uh, uh, work against life, well, then it's, it's not, not going to work. It's not enough to uh, yeah. uh, pray to church and to um, ask for an indulgence. Yeah, all that stuff that we've just heard early by Mr. Spahn and so on is making fun of people. Um, he is not regretting anything and uh, out of nothing he talks about forgiving. Sorry, this is not the question here. Uh, other things have to come in here. And uh, if he doesn't get his punishment, uh, he can think whether God can forgive what he did. For me, as a person, as a human being, this is not a question. I just call for justice. And it's not the time for forgiving. That is my impression, at least. And uh, It's also important because we have this discussion about forgiveness. They try to explain it psychologically, what happens to people. It doesn't mean that you forgive if you understand. You can understand people, but that's not equivalent to forgiveness. And that these people have accumulated a lot of guilt and that they have to assume responsibility for it against vis-a-vis -vis society, vis-a-vis uh, their neighbors. Um, that is understanding. That's not forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, who is free of sin may throw the first stone. And uh, it's not me who's doing this, but I was not involved in the agenda, in their agenda. And uh, it's their responsibility. So um, they have to think of this themselves. But apparently, the politic in the recent years have uh, been uh, has been designed by people who conspired against life. And uh, you can't bar people from right. And this is what people know in the medieval ages. It's elementary. A society that uh, fails on this will collapse. Well, thank you very much, Wilfried. I think that's really important. Um, also, the aspect that we must not dispense with our integrity. Um, um, with our souls, um, salvation, with our spiritual salvation, uh, we must not confuse what's uh, right, what's human, and what's on a um, divine level. Well, you'll keep us um, abreast of what's happening. Thank you very much, and we'll stay in touch. And then let's uh, start the new year with optimism. I believe that this year will be calmer and more relaxed and maybe more targeted than the hectic um, last couple of years were. 
So thank you very much. So that was Wilfried Schmitz, who gave us an update on the situation in this um, highly uh, problematic um, military appeal proceedings. Now we have uh, guests who are also subject to a very problematic situation. Uh, Dr. Monica Young, a specialist in general medicine um, with a focus on naturopathy and was um, um, sentenced now by uh, the court of Weinheim, the Weinheim District Court, uh, for issuing um, allegedly false mask attestations. And uh, Ivan Kuhnemann, her lawyer, is here as well. He's a lawyer um, with a focus on real estate law, criminal law, and commercial and corporate law, and also is a an expert on questions concerning uh, COVID. Now, let's see, are you both with us? With us? Yes. Hello, first of all, to the, to the colleagues, Dr. Vodak. Hello for Dr. Zhang. Well, great to have you both here. Well, maybe, uh, Mr. Kuhnemann, you can give us a, a little overview of what has happened. Uh, and I, uh, maybe we can uh, be on a first-name basis as well, because we know each other personally. Yes, we've known uh, personally. I don't know uh, Dr. Vodak personally or Dr. Jungler, you know, how happy they are, how happy they are with this. <clears throat> well, anyway, uh, my, um, you've just uh, repeated my plaidoyer, really, which is the bias, um, that everybody is biased here because of their personal uh, side that they may take on, either being affected by uh, the measures or not. And this is what I said, that all these processes and the proceedings with a corona relevance should have been um, paused until we get to a point of time uh, when ruling this, being able to rule this without any prejudice, and um, until that point is reached, nobody must be um, uh, sentenced here to anything. And that really reminded me what you just said of what I presented to the court. Well, thank you for the reaction. Well, I have to say it was a little bit uh, short of an hour before that my colleague Beata Banner pleaded. She took three hours, 15 minutes. I think everybody was happy not for me not taking that long um, and the reactions were not readable in the faces. That was different with Beate. Uh, there was a lot of eye rolling and uh, more things, something that pointed out the bias of the course as well. But, <clears throat> the judgment was quite uh, massive, two years and nine months of imprisonment, uh, no parole, so Ms. Yanis would soon have to go to prison and will spend two years and nine months there if nothing changed, right? Yes, but it's not going to stay that because even the um, prosecutors appealed because um, it is not um, high enough on their the, the ruling, on their point of view. Madness. And, and the reason for this 
incredibly severe judgment. Uh, we had Dr. Tribal with us last uh, Friday, who was exonerated in a similar situation. And here now, um, they uh, the full force of the law hit her. Now, what's um, the uh, court's justification? Yes, in the hearing, of course, it has been reasoned. Um, from my perspective, that was uh, ridiculous as well, what the chair put out as a reasoning. I have to add, um, the prosecutors Mannheim appealed. Um, they are called for six months, six, three years, six months, so nine more months. and. The reason was a bit uh, based on the course of the uh, lawsuit, which the audience doesn't know, especially as uh, the colleague Bana was quite uh, strong in her formulation, where I may not have been quite as tough, but uh, this is why in the end I was called as the half-blind under the blind by the judge. So this was a bit uh, um, trespassing what she formulated. Um, I noted the most important points because they were so incredible uh, that I'd like to forget them really. But this is not really the point. Um, we as attorneys are used to this kind of language. Um, we can beat out and uh, take in and forget it, but it was, from my perspective, it was uh, had nothing to do with the rule of court uh, law. Uh, it started with 3,400 uh, wrong mask tests um, without any bodily examination and uh, the court uh, made this a question of law, whether this is necessary. So all evidence which based on a medical effect, uh, effectivity or uh, harm of the mask was sim uh, simply uh, including the protection against viruses, we presented that uh, uh, um, absences to uh, illnesses to lead to absences from work um, are done without any physical examination. And that was, um, they want to prove that 166 different mask types have been taken off the mask of the market uh, because they are so damaging to the health that they shouldn't be worn at all apart from any health effect. All of this evidence and of course expert hearings for the effect Zacharias Fögen, others, Dr. Tribal from Austria, uh, trying to get Dr. Trindl's um, 182-page expertise, which were uh, prepared in October, giving an overview of the current uh, state of the science on the effectivity and the risk of the masks. All of this was simply rejected. Some uh, four policemen were heard once who were in searching, uh, who were searched the practice rooms. 
and that was the first day. It started at 9 in the morning, and um, just before 6, the prosecutor pleaded because the chair uh, simply closed the evidence, the hearing of the evidence. So it was fascinating to see. And of course, after nine hours of hearings, we said, we're not going to plead today. We have to do that in a different hearing, especially um, uh, looking at the plea uh, of the prosecution, uh, looking at three and a half years. And we had an even tougher one, which is not hitting for Dr. Jung. Dr. Jung had um, an employee working in the office, not a medical personnel, who works in the phone and email. And uh, she was asked, uh, she was, uh, her, her sentence was to be one and a half years for contribution. This was uh, uh, something that really surprised me. How this is possible, how can somebody working in an office uh, see whether things are correct or not correct of what the doctor says. It was very interesting how the prosecution opened the document. So after nine hours, um, there, nothing happened on the evidence level. Um, it was a discussion really on uh, medical content could be taken as evidence or not. and. Uh, the prosecution started by saying that uh, there was a lot of discussion going on because there are different legal um, views of physical examinations, but uh, that Dr. Jung had a high criminal energy because she should have known that she has to examine people in person. Uh, so it was so unclear and un inconsistent that it left me speechless. Uh, so, of course, if things are legally undisputed, we can say, okay, if it's not clear, it could uh, still not be clear for a normal person. If something is very clear legally, then we have to assume that for somebody who hasn't got legal training, they can get the information uh, or read it up uh, in the internet research, um, get their consultation so that one can uh, assume this. But saying that we have uh, had a long legal debate whether it's necessary or not, and Dr. Jung must have known this, and uh, that's uh, a science high uh, criminal energy is completely illogic. So that's a start. And uh, another point was that with the definition that uh, the federal court came up with the physical examination that this uh, was involved, that usually this has to be done. As legal people, we know as a rule of thumb allows exceptions and has to be done all the time. And here we have to discuss whether this is an exception or not. But this is a discussion which was blocked right away. And they tried to um, interpret as a rule, meaning ever and always uh, putting it as if those, this was the general uh, ruling of the federal court. 
Madness. Dr. Jung, can you uh, tell me how you feel about this sentence? Well, well, I'm okay, personally. Um, I am working with trauma and fear treatment for a long time, uh, so I deal with it. But nobody for, of us expected that the uh, judge would have any ambitions to come up with a real verdict. Uh, it was quite clear that I would be sentenced to something, and maybe we asked uh, or we thought of a suspension in the first round. Um, uh, we didn't expect it to be as draconic as it turned out. And the point was three years prohibition to work and uh, now an immediate with immediate effect because on the view of the uh, court, I'm so criminal that I'm a general risk to the public and whatever they have come up with. And that kind of reminds me on this description of Orwell's book, um, how you have to imagine this. It's a military uh, boot that kicks you in the face. Um, so um, that's just kicking in on somebody lying on the ground, um, what they're doing here and the plans that they had right from the beginning. At least that was my impression. Let me put it that way. Um, it was also interesting to see that in the press release, right from the start of the court, uh, immediately they assumed that this was a political background. Um, I don't want to read it out uh, as a whole, but just a couple of highlights. Um, the background is the political attitude of the offender who is of the opinion that uh, restricting the spreading of coronavirus by rules and uh, regulations is not um, applicable and not relevant for the citizens, especially wearing a mask is something that the offender publicly um, spoke out against um, in rallies and in YouTube videos. And this quite made it clear from the beginning that, again, again, the current narrative, by now it's quite clear that the measures neither were effective, not that they were of any help, that they caused damage. The president or the chair um, of the uh, child and youth doctors in autumn last year and this year said the masks shouldn't be um, worn. They are a part of the problem. That's why we have all these RSV infects now and so on. So in the current situation, it is very clear that the measures at the time were arbitrary. They didn't help and there were a risk for the public health. And the court simply was not interested in listening to this and would follow what Mr. Schmidt said. The addressability of the judges and the layman was not there. I didn't see anything. Whatever facts, whatever arguments, whatever uh, professional ethics, and there's conventions, whatever, the best conscience and knowledge and all these things, whatever it was, the arguments simply bounced off. That was my impression on this bias um, of the and the fixed being 
held in the corona and the COVID problematics. And of course, any would be anybody would be objectively biased. The uh, judge uh, restricted public, as I said last time. It wasn't again different this time. There were seven seats um, due to the corona issues and to the COVID issues. And these are the details that show how she is completely blocked in her world uh, of the corona uh, measures. And I didn't see anybody, any, any content argument, any legal arguments, data, facts, evidence, anything uh, was heard. I couldn't see that at all. Um, one more thing that I think was interesting is in the announcing of the verdict, the two laymen were somehow not involved in the two days before. One could nod at times and the other had no expression at all. And that shows um, that they were listening to what was said. This is like I would imagine that they look into the matter at hand and I didn't see any of that in their body language, but one of them said uh, uh, was happy smiling when the uh, verdict was announced. And I would really think if you think back what this is all about, I think it is quite telling a story for the whole of the process on how all of this was addressed. Uh, we really have to see what is going on here. It's about uh, preventing harm from people by certificates. We don't have to discuss about this anymore. We've looked at this for two and a half years and everybody who is open for knowledge should have noted now that the damages that the masks damage potentially everybody, but especially those who have symptoms. So it is about um, preventing damage and um, everybody who wears a mask needs an occupational safety examination. So what we have here is um, uh, putting people into prison for doing what is right and uh, preventing damage from others. And if you compare this to other verdicts, not in the COVID context and other areas, uh, two years and nine months, is quite a word <clears throat> and it has nothing to do with the offense itself um, saying according to the professional rule rulings and uh, regulations preventing harm from people i think it's a very interesting combination could we get a comparison as to what do you normally get uh, with someone who has no prior conviction like uh, what do you have to commit in order to get uh, two years, nine months uh, without any uh, parole. Uh, I don't know if you can say something on that. Well, it's really a bit gobsmacking, to be honest. Uh, usually, if you have no prior conviction, uh, um, but it's also even sufficient if you don't have a prior conviction in the same area. So if you've committed another uh, severe crime, you always get a, um, um, a sentence on parole and um, the limit is here. Uh, two years is the limit, otherwise you can't uh, have it on parole only by law. Uh, so it's very high. Um, but even that can't justify it, I think. Um, but it's, that's a question of opinion, of course. 
Um, um, Viviane and myself talked about it ahead of time already when we heard about this, that despite all uh, worries, this was quite surprising uh, for it to be so severe, actually. The question is always, what's the motivation behind it uh, of the people involved uh, that um, that may be of secondary importance for you, Dr. Jen, um, understandably, if you're the affected person. But if you look at it uh, from a bit of a distance, um, you kind of wonder what drives the public prosecutor, what drives the judge to um, go about it so severely, they could make um, have an easier time. It was clear from the get-go um, what direction it goes into once the uh, um, the uh, court case is accepted in the first place. That means that um, it is already acceptable um, or understandable by the um, judge uh, what the public prosecutor has presented, but uh, we could see that um, uh, the legal um, the uh, personnel involved um, want to get out of uh, this with um, as little noise as possible. They could simply sentence you to a year and eight months, and then you, they can uh, put it on probation. But to have such a severe sentence really gives me the impression, even though that's difficult to judge from a distance, that these are people who who are convinced of what they do, at least the judge, and maybe the um, uh, appeal, um, uh, the plea by uh, Ms. Barnum um, may have made a, uh, its contribution. I don't want to be negative about it. I can't judge it anyway. But uh, other than uh, uh, lawyers, the uh, judges uh, are um, very uh, resilient. They can actually lash out uh, pretty badly. So I think there's a misjudgment here in terms of uh, in legal terms, but also a human uh, failure on the part of the judge here. That won't help you, and I wouldn't give you any false hopes. Now, it's always a question of individual cases, but I find it very difficult to imagine that um, in um, a court of appeals where you'll have different uh, people presiding that this will be sustain sustained because for a first um, perpetrator in inverted commas I don't think that you're a perpetrator because you didn't do anything criminally relevant from my point of view but uh, this is difficult to sustain and then if you um, the press release that you um, uh, quoted it was uh, it gave away uh, the um, the court's attitude because it uh, was put into a political uh, context and uh, the court kind of accepts political um, superiority over uh, the um, the law. That's really telltale what this uh, press statement makes. It says, yeah, I completely agree. It's even the case that the prosecutor argumented that way, <clears throat> uh, saying that my client has tried to uh, <clears throat> torpedize, uh, jeopardize the actions or the measures of the government, not helping the people, but on the contrary, politically acting, uh, not in the sense of the people, and uh, working counter-government. And uh, there are, <clears throat> well, we may be talking about the Roman statutes here, it's political prosecution, quite clearly. I don't know if the people are aware of this. My colleague 
Ms. Barner argumented that way, but the reasoning was, however, we have to say that the employee of Ms. Chang got 90 um, a day sentences, and she didn't have to go to prison on um, probation, but 90 uh, times 30 euros, and with the reasoning in the hearing that the employee didn't do that because of from um, Bana, but um, despite her. And uh, Ms. Barna had a couple of comparisons to the past, and the judge and said uh, she reacted so sensitive, uh, so sensitive that uh, she was asked to um, see if they could uh, check for a criminal charge, because these are comparisons that she rejected. And um, in the context of my plateauier, I didn't mention this, even if we went to the wrong um, prosecution, that even if it were uh, like the federal court ruled that uh, the physical examination has to be done, the uh, benefit and the uh, efficacy of the mask would be relevant. So if we said, okay, the masks are very, very good, but they damage a lot, uh, and then this should be a balance of powers, and um, I just have to damage someone, even then we would have gotten two different results. So if uh, <clears throat> Ms. Chung had come to the wrong assessment here, that this is actually not prohibited, and it was prohibited, then there would be um, about a mistaken probation. All of this, what I presented in my plaidoyer, uh, I think it was very interesting to see that the statement of Dr. Zhang in the beginning of the 4,374 thesis, who can remember that actively, who of these were or physically seen or not, and what did I do with them? Did I phone them? Did I do an amnesis or was it an email contact? You don't remember after two years. That's quite normal. And uh, Ms. Jung said um, in the beginning that in these 4,734, I can't see anybody where I said this is not my patient. So we know this. Um, from Jens Beng, if the uh, certificates are there and the, they put different names in, uh, so there are people who falsifies them. They could have been on that list as well. And uh, then for Dr. Zhang, Ms. Dr. Zhang said that not in everyone she did a physical examination. So that was the starting point. And there was a two-hour break at lunchtime um, where we had to read 2,000 pages of uh, files. That was interesting to see because there's tons of uh, certificates there who were there of existing patients of uh, Dr. Zhang. And after the two hours, I said, well, there's lots of uh, certificates that don't have anything to do with the offense. The judge told me how bad I was prepared. I should have known the files. Um, and they, the prosecution said, you can uh, get things into the uh, proceedings that um, 
take uh, the blame off. So um, that's what the two assessors need to do. Um, what do they think about this? Um, of course, they don't, didn't say anything. And um, as the public radio was there with two seats in the back, and of course, um, they had written already that the uh, doctor admitted to have uh, had 4,730 certificates without physical opposition. I made this clear to the radio people uh, saying this is uh, being reported online and this is not correct. It was said that there were some but not the number and it was admitted that there were <clears throat> in these 4,700 there is none um, who uh, didn't get the certificate by Dr. Jung. That was acknowledged. And then the uh, hearing of the evidence was continued and um, we carried on in the next hearing. A uh, little story I can add here um, because that, uh, and then uh, on the next day in my plenary, I said, how many cases are to be ruled here? Um, what's the, we haven't got any evidence on how many concrete uh, offenses are um, alleged. Is it uh, three, 300, 4,300 or even more? I said this in my plenary. And then apparently the prosecution and the judge said, well, we are in the wrong tracks here. And then in the a statement one said they did look up in the minutes and there it said that uh, Mrs. Uh, Dr. Jung on asking whether it was in the written complaint she confirmed a couple of times. Wow, so was a figure <laughs> given in the um, uh, opinion explanation? Yeah, 4,374 if, if that was confirmed. I wonder uh, why we do the hearings of an evidence. You were a prosecutor, and if the offense is fully admitted to, then, of course, you have the problem that this has to be uh, seen as um, reducing uh, the uh, penalty. And uh, that wouldn't take a case in the plaidoyer of the prosecutor, now the chair to save the situation kind of had to assess this um, um, but and added that the, uh, she uh, didn't uh, show um, regret. So the fact is that on the last day of hearing on the um, 2nd of January, uh, she uh, simply turned my uh, admission into a uh, comprehensive uh, admission. She simply um, invented the whole story. This didn't happen the way um, they uh, claimed to uh, base their judgment on. And even if it may happen that uh, you don't speak so clearly, at the latest, by my clarification, it was the same um, person taking the minutes. Um, at the latest, after lunchtime, if it really was in the minutes, um, um, I don't. I haven't read it yet. I couldn't see what was in there at what point in time, and I don't want to say anything here now. But of course, at the latest point after my rectification uh, after lunch, um, had 
this would have to have to be added to the minutes. <coughs> and uh, this would have to be considered quite clearly. So it's like being in the wrong movie here. So um, if you take uh, a different evidence, <coughs> very, very queer. Well, those were questions of content, actually. <laughs> And I think it's really important uh, with such obviously uh, unjust um, uh, sentences, it's important to see the wider context. And the wider context, of course, is the political background, of course, because there were 15 policemen in the building and there were another uh, 20-odd uh, policemen around the building. So it was uh, very well protected. And I don't know who um, requires that, whether the judge orders that or the um, public prosecutor, who comes up with that notion to give this kind of coloring to this, to, to, to uh, come up with this uh, threatening background. It's the director of the court, who was the chair in the proceedings as well, and uh, was the chair, the professional chair of that court. And what really irritated them, um, I think the time is gone where we can uh, sweet talk things and um, discuss at the at the level of contents because uh, Mr. Schmitz, Mr. Jungsitz, these two uh, assessors, uh, nobody cares about the facts anymore, at least in this uh, case. It's immaterial. It's more about, well, to look at the context. Um, if we look at this presumed um, crimes um, from 2020, from April up until two years ago now. That's um, a while ago. And then to pass a judgment now, after it has been found that all these measures were actually neither uh, well motivated nor helpful, but actually caused severe damage we uh, won't have to uh, deal with the damage for generations, but for at least one generation to come, the children will still uh, have to undergo a lot of therapy and, and the consequences of that. And the question also um, uh, should be dealt with what human rights were violated, what constitutional rights were violated, what international law was violated. And I think one motif here of some judges, uh, as this judge, is that they wanted to stick to their existing jurisdiction because otherwise they would have to see that they actually passed some incorrect judgments and that they are really walking all over human rights here. And um, I said it before, I have at least 20, 30 more um, requirements to appear in court um, as a witness in uh, client cases who um, um, have uh, f are fighting their rights in the context of this mask mandate. So any uh, system of uh, rule of law should actually uh, recognize that this is no 
crime that we uh, this calls for an amnesty for anyone who's um, um, uh, convicted of a crime here. So we don't have this problem of mask attestations uh, anymore. Um, this only exists in the heads of public prosecutors and judges. A medical action, and this is something that has to be done to the best knowledge and uh, consciousness. If I'm of the opinion that something that is recommended everywhere publicly, wherever I look, guidelines and whatsoever, <clears throat> where I can be prosecuted if I don't do it, and if I, as a doctor, am of a different opinion, I've informed myself that I certify my patients that they can't get this treatment. I think of things that were done in guideline based in the past where we did this and where we would have been uh, had to defend ourselves if we hadn't. I don't know. Um, this was this was done before and it took a long time. <clears throat> and uh, there is many medical drugs where there's late findings that uh, turned out later that one um, probably had to go to court for uh, turned out wrong later on. And as a doctor, if you did it right beforehand and you did your job properly, basically saying, I am out, I don't administer this and I certify my patients you really did what a doctor is obliged to do and can't be reasoned as well. Precisely, that's what I said uh, to the judge and the judge then uh, drew her political conclusions again, this uh, lack of uh, repent and etc, etc. Well, uh, uh, who should be having the insight here is something that uh, should be discussed. I think in a punishment, shouldn't there at least one single concrete case where this was actually done, which is part of that criminal case? Indeed, every single case, not only one case, but every single case would have had to be uh, proven. And I can only agree to what I just heard because it is very severe. Uh, severe uh, in interference with uh, the freedom to th um, therapy. If I, as a as a physician, say that the wearing of a mask uh, has such severe consequences and that it will lead to typical consequences uh, of this tool, maybe the mask or anything else, and I uh, cracked a joke in my plea, uh, we used to read nicotine. Um, 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 docs on um, AC2 receptors, smokers have fewer infections, then uh, we also found that alcohol already taken reduces the number of germs in the mouth and it's also helpful to reduce uh, infections. And then we read vitamin D is um, helpful, so if I'm uh, naked in my garden, uh, smoking and um, drinking alcohol, then I'm reducing uh, my infectious um, um, risk. Well, if the lawmaker uh, requires me to smoke and drink naked, well, then um, obviously smoking is harmful for your health. And if I've uh, smoked half a um, pack of cigarettes against uh, COVID, 
um, that I'm really sick with it, um, that I um, don't have to bear with this. I mean, that's pretty obvious. We don't need to talk about this anymore, do we? Well, what we are discussing here may be of importance for the appeal. And I remember a case where a doctor did something wrong. He did a hygienic uh, problems and that uh, led to hepatitis B in eight people. I found this out. I looked at the files and it was right. And uh, <clears throat> he was liable to these eight people, but he wasn't punished for um, harming the people because uh, he couldn't, uh, they couldn't show who was harmed before. If there was one where this didn't take case, then they can't be punished for that. And what's more in this case is, there's no uh, intent to uh, do bodily harm. Uh, that is something that you couldn't get this uh, physician for. Now, um, of course, uh, negligent um, bodily harm is also uh, criminal, but the uh, there is no, uh, it's not a criminal um, act to issue an attestation. And I had the impression that the judge uh, realized full well that it will go to an appeal anyway, and, uh, no matter who will appeal against it, what side will appeal against it, it has to get off the table as fast as possible, which was achieved within two uh, days of hearings, with including five hours of pleas alone. That was simply to be brushed off the table as fast as possible. It was clear that the uh, public prosecutor um, had to be uh, flamorous to a, a certain point uh, so that only one side will appeal to it. And um, nevertheless, both of them appealed, which uh, what's really the scandal here is uh, the imposition of a preliminary um, ban on um, exercising her job. Um, so what we're talking about is April 2020 and January of 2021. Um, all of this happened. Beyond that, there was no um, complaint against her, and it's isolated in the context of the mass mandate. And now, after two years to issue a preliminary ban on um, uh, exercising her profession, even though it's a profession that is controlled by a chamber of um, a professional chamber, which uh, is responsible for um, granting or withdrawing the approval to exercise uh, the profession. And there was no concrete uh, indication that this is uh, uh, urgently necessary. Um, I don't see where that is the case. Isn't that uh, an assessment of uh, office? Um, no, it is not really um, a, a usurpation of um, power uh, in office. It is actually possible in the law, but it is the wrong use of the law. That's what I would say from my point of view. Because if I... I have to justify uh, banning someone from exercising their profession with a view to what might go wrong going forward. And the only explanation was that Dr. Zhang, uh, let me uh, um, loosely quote, um, uh, we wondered uh, if uh, it was said that we could maybe dispense with a preliminary ban on uh, her um, professional 
uh, activity, but after her latest comments, uh, she has no understanding of what uh, where she's wrong, and that is why we need to uh, ban her from uh, exercising her um, profession. Not only part of it, that is possible as well, no, all of her profession. I would like to see that doctor who supports this uh, in the sense of the case <clears throat> that um, if you have to wear the mask, uh, for example, in the same train, you pass a, a border and you have to put on a mask and you pass the border again, you can take the mask off. I'd like to see the doctor who can explain that to me. At the end of the day, the data are obvious and it's obvious that the masks, we don't need to discuss this anymore. There are expert opinion studies uh, on all the various measures, the lockdowns, etc. It's all open, out in the open. In this case of law, we're not discussing facts or the um, balancing of justice, as you would expect in, a, uh, in the rule of law. It's about maintaining this uh, charade until it really uh, crashes altogether. It is obvious that the uh, measures have not helped, they have been damaging, uh, but uh, the legal experts have not, uh, well, I'm talking about the uh, district court specifically uh, now that ruled on my case. Um, they never heard of it, obviously, and I heard it from uh, legal experts that there are obviously um, recommendations uh, from uh, way on high to judges. We know that there have been recommendations in uh, the, uh, for public prosecutors, but there are recommendations now to judges on the um, severity of um, sentences in the context of uh, vaccination violations. Uh, there are uh, patients who have um, attestations because they are ill and cannot uh, take vaccinations. They have, of course, their own cases uh, pending, and there might be, might be recommendations on that as well. Well, maybe I can pick up on that. Uh, Boris Reitschup on the website wrote an article on this proceedings rating to DPA information, which was wrong. This is why I turned to Kai Rebmann, who did that article, uh, saying that some of the things are wrong. Amongst others, Kai Rebmann had assumed that this is the new uh, legal situation after the 24th of uh, 11, uh, 22, which was applied, and he thought it was especially severe case. and. Now also the uh, also defenders were conversed uh, conversed uh, um, <clears throat> as uh, it was reported that uh, I had uh, supported the wrong side and um, I talked about this and uh, with him and um, I talked to him about these other things as well and here we can see that uh, to large parts, prosecutors have told me that often they are presenters um, to represent in the court hearings, 
So <clears throat> somebody else may go to represent somebody else and they tell me <clears throat> in the hearings, well, I, I know him, we can't just stop this 153 or 53A with a little um, penalty. They tell me, no, I got the instruction that I can't drop it at all. And uh, what we see here, this is not minority things, uh, 297 SCGB as maximum a year or a financial fine. I have uh, top uh, attorneys who usually in this kind of uh, proceedings would never play a role. So. It's interesting if it is a prosecutor, officially uh, general, and not um, a lower-ranking person. So this is something that we do see here, especially in these processes. And uh, if politics or if they, uh, the ministries, I don't want to say that they hand out specific uh, instructions, but the prosecutors know what is intended by the politics. So in the new version, if it's not against better knowledge and uh, uh, not only for authorities and insurances, everybody knows what the uh, politics wanted to intend, as, especially looking at the speed it was done. This is exactly to aim this to be able to prosecute these certificates. So everybody or every prosecutor know what they are supposed to do, being told or not. Well, what's um, even aggravating here is uh, that all these cases were between April 2020 and uh, January 2021, that was prior to the modification of this uh, article of law. So if you look at what they um, accused me of, none of this applies. It wasn't against better um, judgment. It was nothing applies. But in uh, terms of uh, contents, it didn't seem to matter at all. So I have um, elements of manipulation that I can see by the part of the uh, court. It's fascinating, really. Um, there were um, um, re requests to um, uh, uh, bias petitions, um, and they were all rejected. And um, the uh, most creative one was the judge lies. And uh, of course, it has to be uh, uh, ruled on whether it's uh, whether there is a bias or not. That's the little story I wanted to share as well. Uh, the case was that Ms. Banner and I, um, before the second hearing, we were at a conference and I was uh, sick due to respiratory issue uh, until Friday and I was good and well, healthy to go to the conference and probably I picked it up too quickly again and then on Friday night, I went there, and on Saturday, I got uh, problems with my uh, gut and stomach, and uh, Ms. Barner got the, a strong cough on Sunday noon and left the conference with a strong cough, went to Heidelberg, went to bed, and slept until next morning when the 
hearings were to take place. But we said that we didn't want to uh, not appear because if it hadn't been in the three weeks, we would have started have to start again. So we said, okay, we'll go there. Although if we're not really to cover the day, but we give the state opportunity to carry on. And so we were just uh, before nine meeting up with the uh, judge and uh, the prosecutor and uh, one of the assessors. It was a kind of 30 square meter room and uh, we made it clear to the judge that we are not able to uh, do the hearing. We didn't want to uh, stop the proceedings. Um, um, we just wanted to just go through it quickly, do something, and then uh, postpone it. And in the context of this discussion, I said that uh, as I didn't hot cough, so um, if you have a stomach problem, you can't see it in the people. I said, well, I was in bed uh, with a respiratory disease until Friday, but don't worry, <clears throat> I was tested and so on, blah, blah, blah. No corona, just, uh, and then Miss Barna was at uh, two, three meters away from me, four meters off the uh, judge and coughed at times. As far as I saw, she turned away all the time. And uh, then the judge asked her, well, what she has. And Ms. Bonner said, uh, well, I can't tell you. I've got these symptoms. On Sunday, I went home and to bed and uh, I wasn't tested. Could be Corona. And then the, the judge said, I thought it was a joke. Well, if I catch it, uh, you know that I will uh, file you with a criminal charge. Of course I will. And of course, Ms. Bonner said um, uh, she was biased. And um, she has to have a statement on that. And there she said Ms. Bonner had sat one meter away from the chair and provokingly coughed into her face. Which just demonstrates, well, those are statements about her worldview. I don't um, presume that she actively lies. This is only a question of content, uh, but that's her experience. That's the way she sees this. And that means that she can't uh, have a, an impartial uh, judgment anymore. David has just said so, and I did so. It's collective bias here. And this judge clearly showed that she is afraid of Corona. And in this position as well, I don't know if it was hers or the prosecutors, uh, a mask played a role because we didn't wear masks either. And that was uh, more infuriating without wearing a mask and uh, talking about the process, proceedings, discussing the wearing a mask to defend, to fight against a virus. Of course, if I have to imagine that this mask protects me, uh, the other ways, we've um, talked about all of this. Let's assume that Miss Barner, I don't think it were the case, she had corona and wore a mask, then probability would have been much higher that she got a severe course and uh, ended in uh, ICU uh, would have been much higher. 
according to the study. Yes, but the people who are caught in this um, worldview are not open to rational arguments anymore, and that is a huge problem if you uh, have uh, the wrong person in um, as, as a judge or as a, um, uh, a jury member. <coughs> this really sounds medieval ages. Probably the process was there at the time. There are yeah, some parallels there. Just on these uh, manipulative techniques, I found it interesting the way they uh, were working, focusing only on the question of the, all of this thing was uh, reduced to was there a physical examination or not, and anything that has to do with uh, contents with uh, um, medical professional etc. is ignored completely, and then uh, turning this uh, on its head. Uh, the risk of mask attestations when it's really a question of what is the risk of wearing masks. So one thing is turned into the opposite. And then there was this uh, divide and conquer game. Um, my staff member was um, accused of not um, uh, finding a different job. Why does she still work for me? And then Mr. Kuhnemann is accused or um, the a defense team altogether. So it was really <clears throat> ugly what happened there. And also this gaslighting, so to modifying the past um, retrospectively um, with this um, admission on the third day, she was really uh, convinced, I'm, uh, at least I hope that she didn't lie, that there was uh, a threefold admission on the first day. That was not the case, but it was represented as such. It's very difficult to work with people. How can you handle people like that? And it's not only in court. Uh, we'll have that in society as well. How can you handle people? How can you deal with people who are so removed from reality and are no longer open to reality, to arguments, because they're still uh, fearful or because they're simply convinced of it or because they have some other way of being caught in themselves or in a certain worldview, that is really very problematic. And if they get into um, positions as judges, deciding individually and independently, even if there are jurors, uh, next to her, um, that is really ugly. I would also like to mention by Christa, so the critical uh, judges and public prosecutors, there's been this uh, article since July of last year um, um, about uh, the uh, issuing of uh, untrue, of incorrect um, medical attestations. And uh, there's a case from the Third Reich um, it refers back to the Third Reich. There is a lot in this article that I quoted in court. It's not about dangerous physicians to be removed uh, from the medical practice to protect the uh, population against the huge damage that could be done by these mask attestations. It is simply a question of removing critical physicians or uh, physicians who insist on their right to choose the right therapy and who simply insist 
on making their own decision in their own free profession. It's about removing those people from the profession, which is really short-sighted because the health system as a whole is in the process of collapse. And not least because of all the consequences of these jabs that are coming down the line on both sides. The staff members in the health uh, system who had to be um, uh, accept these vaccinations, all the patients. And um, it's, it's um, even more incredible against this background that there are these uh, pseudo crimes uh, that are created and um, huge uh, court cases are created there where really societally we're facing huge problems elsewhere real problems nobody knows there's no uh, tried and tested treatment for vaccination damage nobody knows how many people will die of this how many uh, will be chronically um, ill requiring rehab how many will be chronically ill we have huge problems in society but nevertheless public prosecutors are um, prosecuting um, in inverted uh, commas mask perps so self-created crimes five years ago that simply would have been worth um, uh, a wry smile and they neglect, as Mr. Jungblut said, they're neglecting their own actual job, namely to prosecute the real crimes, um, bodily harm through um, vaccination requirements, the people who are in positions of uh, rep um, responsibility for implementing these policies, they should be prosecuted, and we should look at who is responsible at that end. Especially if, if you just look at it from the legal perspective, Dr. Jung has just quoted the Krista article, but there is another essay that talks about the punishability of the uh, mask mandates in terms of bodily harm. At, uh, this would have been the latest exit in legal terms to take. Any doctor who did that at least would be justified in doing so. And. Uh, Maybe the prosecutor said, maybe you remember that this emergency is something that the uh, defense has never uh, presented. And that was before our plenary. Um, and otherwise, her office would have obliged her to check this on her own behalf. So I quite clearly see a political thrust here. You can't doubt that. <laughs> what really exemplifies where our legal system stands and where it's moving is really to um, make the link between protecting uh, the patient as best you can, uh, prevent suffering, maintain health, which is our responsibility as physicians, and to turn this into a crime, that's ambitious, and then to use that as justification for an, uh, for imprisonment um, is even more ambitious and banning um, somebody from exercising their um, uh, their profession of what for that can only be a ban for those who don't uh, fall in line politically that's the only way it makes sense yes well i think we can state this is not 
rationally, legally understandable what's going on. I think that's quite clear. Uh, these things are blocked because nobody wants to be the first one to pull the first, uh, to throw the first stone. I think that's quite clear. And uh, <clears throat> we don't have to interpret this anymore. And it's quite clear if we look at this from the outside, what were the criteria before for verdicts? Of course, there were some wrong verdicts at times, but now this one here quite clearly has an objective and this is to block it. And I don't know how old that chair is. She probably wants to have a career or is afraid of whatever <clears throat> or believes the narrative or whatever and doesn't want to get into it. So I think on their side, it's quite understandable for us and for democracy and the rule of law. It has um, disastrous consequences. <clears throat> and we can only hope that in the appeal, the people are a bit more down to the facts and uh, Maybe this is portrayal a bit and that uh, there may be a change in narrative and then in the sense of the new view, the uh, sentence may be different. But um, <clears throat> we see this broad range of decisions. If we look at Dr. Treble and uh, your constellation, it's pure madness. What I'd like to know, and there was a question from the audience as well, this certificate without a physical examination has been decided elsewhere already. This is a quote of the Bavarian court uh, from 18th of July that a certificate is not wrong if no bodily exam was done. And we've had this in the uh, work leaves as well. That was simply wiped off. Uh, they said, we're not interested in this and it's needed, is it? Absolutely. Um, it says in the short commentary uh, by Fischer, Zwei um, Brücken um, Regional Court, a physical examination can be sensed with if the uh, knowledge gain is close to zero or if the patient cannot be expected to present for examination. It goes further with psychological uh, complaints. What are you going to examine there? Physiologically, if somebody has a trauma from the past um, and um, that has to do with breathing, um, what do you want to look into there? Um, do you want to produce the situation and see how people freak out? No, that doesn't make any sense. All of this doesn't make sense. Um, and even prior to COVID, there was never this uh, strict uh, jurisdiction by the Federal Court of Justice. Whenever I had a diagnosis, usually it requires um, a, a physical examination and usually means that there are exceptions and there are uh, logical exceptions and it um, is not a simple question of uh, law of the law it's a question of medicine it never will be a question of law and i hope once it hits the federal court of justice uh, um, independently of whether it is, uh, there is a collective bias um, that the Federal Court of Justice, I don't think that they will sustain this the way the court in, justice in Mannheim uh, ruled here. I, I can't imagine that the Federal Court of Justice will sustain this. Uh, I can't imagine this. It's un unbelievable. It would be unbelievable if it happened. Although in the press release, 
by the court, they defined what they wanted to have right from the beginning, saying here we have to note that this is not about uh, clarifying whether the people who got the certificate are actually sick or not. <clears throat> so that says it doesn't matter what the person has or how they are, it's just one criteria which is um, that at the point of the offense was not there, um, which is the physical uh, examination. That was the criteria, and that was the nail and the hammer, and everything that uh, didn't fit in was simply wiped off the table. But this is how neither medicine, nor people, nor law work. If I may intervene at this point, that's the problem, I think. Um, gratefully, um, I, I really restricted myself to talking about your case uh, because I uh, feel it's a bit arrogant if I take it to an abstract level um, while you're confronted with two years and nine months of imprisonment. That would be um, arrogant, but um, uh, gratefully uh, you have uh, uh, mentioned that we have to see it in a wider context. Uh, we can speak about the uh, legal aspect. It's um, a uh, in violation of the um, s um, presumption of innocence, um, of course. But we have two uh, main pro problems here. One, the uh, corona problem and the agenda behind it. And we have a structural problem. And that doesn't uh, existed only since corona. Um, it's only being highlighted now in the legal system because these uh, things that, that happen here, the structures, um, the the way a, a judge can lie as a matter of course and the way that things are agreed between the public prosecutor and the uh, the court that they can focus home in on a single aspect um, in order to get rid of uh, the case as fast as possible that we have this legal milieu where this is a matter of course and where nobody needs to fear any consequences for doing that as a public prosecutor or a judge that is a problem and it is well um, how can i put it it's a, a corporate culture as it were in um, the legal system and it is very fundamental and we can actually be grateful to the corona uh, issue that this black box of the judicial system is being opened up now and that a little bit of light is shed on it because there were legal scandals in the past as well but there were always only individual cases where an uh, individual was affected and was um, that was just tough luck i wouldn't want to know how many people who have been uh, committed to uh, psychiatric wards for whatever reason well 600,000 in the last two years yeah and you kind of wonder uh, on what basis, and once you're in, it's very hard to get out again, I needn't tell you. It's a very fundamental structural problem, and the point at the end of the day is, um, well, I can't say uh, the point, but one of the main points is the question of if you want to reform it, I, I think that's maybe uh, too lame a term. If we want to define how this could be changed, in your case, I see the judge, maybe the public prosecutor, as uh, people caught in their own worldview, as you described it. And statistically speaking, it's not so unusual that someone who became a judge has a, a problem with this. That happens, of course. But in order to uh, rebalance these human weaknesses, there should be structures in place in the legal system to offset this, at least in... Um, 
um, appealed court of appeals, um, but oftentimes that's not the case, and we need to look in the uh, fundamentals of the legal system. And um, um, our, our colleague here can probably, Ivan um, can probably um, speak about it as well. There are statistics, I don't want to misquote them, but uh, 30, 40, 50 percent of all um, rulings, uh, judgments passed in Germany are incorrect. And that usually involves human existences, not only in criminal cases, but elsewhere as well. But uh, we have our eyes wide shut uh, of this. So we don't really have um, the rule of law anymore in this country, not only since Corona, but now it's becoming so obvious because such a large number of people are affected that it's a problem that we've had before already. Well, this is a personal affection as well. More people are involved, and we have many people who are personally involved in this. Uh, we could have things like in Weinhahn, um, if we allowed uh, video and sound, uh, you could look this up later, what really was said and what not, and uh, then <clears throat> it could be asked up. Uh, so, the statement is not a monocausal presentation. People can ask, and they can ask for details, which was um, said or done, apparently, although it didn't take care, uh, place. <laughs> and there are means to check it up and ask and uh, check up on the proceedings. That would be interesting for a court of appeal to really um, look at the proceedings in the first uh, instance. And of course, we'd have to come back to the reasoning. Uh, she explained to my client that us lawyers and uh, legal people um, only work on the basis of legal definitions. And uh, the German language and its demissions shows she's not talking about legal definitions. She has a different definition of legal definition than um, we have, that this definition over time is getting more and more precise. And so, of course, my client could have get him informed about this, gotten informed about this. Um, so you really uh, sit there and wonder this. Um, this is a term usually used for what the lawmakers do and other thing, everything else is undefined, and this is a problem. Legal is not, uh, le legalese is not a science, a precise science, and uh, it's always uh, seen in the light of the times that we live in. And if in uh, 2023 we have the assessment that these two years before of the two years before, we would get to mad results. Nobody in April 2020 who uh, consults people in terms of um, legal issues, um, <clears throat> it's a guess best knowledge not to doing that examination. Well, we see that even in the Fisher comment, although it's only three quarters of a page, completely mad. Another problem is that retrospectively they make rules that didn't exist previously, but uh, I should have uh, had the foresight uh, as a prophecy uh, to 
know about this, to define this, and to uh, act accordingly. Uh, that's not my uh, understanding of the law. Um, the My understanding is that there is an act of law since September 2021. Uh, we know what the rules are, but then you can't uh, apply these criteria to something that happened a year and a half or two years previously. So this is really unspeakable. And one question, a generic question really is, how can we as a society get out of this um, trap uh, that we got into with our legal system? And of course, um, I am, uh, or a lot of people uh, are personally affected now because anyone who um, uh, did something uh, contrary to uh, legal requirements with the mask mandates, etc., has now a, um, um, a court case. Um, so people are affected. A lot of people are affected. I think there uh, must be more public pressure and uh, public involvement. They always uh, rule in the name of the people. And in our case, um, there were seven people in the uh, courtroom, and the people were excluded. They were outside the uh, court. It would be a possibility to transmit, um, uh, to broadcast such a uh, court case so that the public can have a, a better idea of what's happening. And then the, the judges would be bound by this uh, wording in the name of the people because they'd have the people in there uh, breathing down their backs. Well, we've heard this uh, from Jerome Bank in Holland who said this and uh, who uh, had this kind of thing and said still it doesn't change. But what did they note is that the uh, atmosphere in the population does change with suddenly a professor of law coming forward uh, wondering what was going on publicly and uh, pointing out that these are politically motivated verdicts. And uh, this would, of course, increase the awareness of the um, of the of the people. Well, Viviana, we have high-caliber professors uh, in criminal law and constitutional law who have written uh, newspaper articles and essays. And uh, what uh, colleague Schmidt said earlier, um, before we um, joined the conversation, I found that interesting, namely that uh, the soldiers, when the judgment was passed by the uh, federal administrative course, laughed out loud because it was so absurd the judgment compared to uh, the findings because it was a, a procedure um, to uh, present findings. Uh, experts were heard. The findings were contrary to what the judgment reflects. So that is what uh, this exposes. And I think that we we saw that uh, pre-corona already, um, but these things aren't recorded, it can't be um, verified. Uh, things are presented that are completely ignored in uh, with written submissals as well. We can have pages and pages of submissals with very substantiated arguments, so substantiated that you can't ignore them, and they don't uh, ignore them, they simply 
pretend like they never this, this dismissal was never made. Well, I do think it is different if the population could have seen that the the soldiers laugh um, on this decision, saying, "What is this? This is ridiculous." It's different from uh, just reading an article, which I. I uh, have to know a lot of the background, if I see it was all presented and this is the decision and they laugh at them. That would be a powerful picture and that could lead to some question marks. Well, absolutely, particularly if we look at the uh, changes between pre and post-COVID or uh, pre and during COVID, how often did I have to speak uh, in front of an empty um, uh, room uh, where no audience was uh, present? When there's no uh, press relevance, nobody comes. Nobody. There's no audience. You have to have a, a board pensioner or something, uh, or maybe a, a school class or a few students who have to do their intern in court and have to have to uh, visited a uh, court case. Um, that is actually different now with COVID, and that has to do with the collective um, uh, sense of, of being affected, that people want to give support, even if they're only um, present in court, by being present in court. I saw that in, um, in the COVID period, that three, four, five people are in the audience who are no press re uh, representatives who simply come to support the, I don't know, um, of, of their friends, um, I don't know. Well, I did have the impression that the director of the judge reduced the public deliberately in order to avoid this moment of uh, inspiration. Um, there was about 50 um, in the other, uh, <clears throat> in the other uh, proceedings that gives a quite a different energy to the room uh, if there's more people who listen to the thing live. And one more thing I'd want to point out is that <clears throat> it is a smear campaign, really, which is being developed by the press and the pre-ruling and so on, and the damage and the um, <coughs> damage of the reputation and so on. I'm called the heavy criminal, a severe criminal. Of course, I have to go to, pr to prison. But it's interesting. Last uh, night, I went my grocery shopping and the uh, cashier uh, came out after me and said I didn't want to speak in front of the other customers. Tell me what's going on. I know this. I am from Warsaw and Poland. They did the same thing to us. I had to flee because they damaged our business at the time. Just so tell me, um, it's an or original story from yesterday. So there is a lot of thing going on in the public, things that are um, uh, deliberately spread and um, that there are other people who have been through similar things. And this is again a moment of change, which is possible there. And uh, things can move because the more shocking the uh, verdict is, or the more abstruse and absurd it is, the more people will wake up and say, this can't be true. And uh, 
This is something that we should bear in mind. Uh, of course, the goal is not to have as many draconian verdicts as possible, but uh, to get into this movement of change and get into the right situation and rule of law. And uh, the final thing I'd like to say is that, um, as it was said at the beginning, where, it, where Mr. Vila said, so we are not allowed to question the measures, and this is the same thing here. The big narrative must not be questioned because otherwise we'll have exactly these uh, verdicts. As a physician, you're obliged to question, and what you did in this period in 2020 to January 2021 it's all such that if you could uh, draw the conclusion that if you look at the scientific evidence um, favoring or uh, in the context of mask wearing, it was all on your side. Only uh, in mid-late 2020, the first very poor um, studies were made. You always have to look at where does the money come from. <laughs> that. Um, contradicted what else you could find in the literature. Um, well, maybe there could be something with the droplets, but we're not sure. And that was all. And the only study, the virology study from Copenhagen, uh, justified your action as well. There were so many things that you could have relied on scientifically. You, on, uh, you adhere to the scientific uh, literature, and you can say that a healthy person in a normal uh, environment um, in day-to-day -day living um, is harmed by the mask, and I'm happy to attest that. Well, maybe if I could pick on this as a non-medical person, we have to clearly say in these uh, poorly produced uh, studies, 2021 and 2020, I've been involved in this for a while, and I looked at this in uh, <clears throat> great detail. If I look at these studies, it's not a balance of uh, ideas. It's just say, good, it may help something, and the damage is completely neglected. It was ridiculous what went down there. And I really regret that there wasn't a um, um, supervisory authority. Um, they were all sidelined. And normally, we have institutions that uh, weigh up uh, benefit and um, damage, but it didn't happen. The government uh, sidelined them. Well, I only see the exit of this exactly justifying and uh, pointing out the narrative, which is about human rights, it's about human dignity, it's about the prohibition of torture and so on. I mentioned this last time with respect to the masks, and there is horrible things. And if we don't address them, it is not going to change the narrative in this society. And uh, we won't be able to move to a decent society if we don't address these things. And it's um, a poor situation at the moment that uh, the uh, courts can go to these kind of activities in the service of the health. Uh, coming up with these uh, draconic uh, verdicts. Thanks for saying it again. Um, in preparing um, uh, this and talking to uh, Mr. Schmitz, we introduced the term um, um, salvation of the soul. 
which is something the judge won't have. Yes, um, I regret that, and I'm saying it without cynicism. Uh, all the people who uh, have supported this narrative for the last uh, few years, um, um, well, if uh, you can identify uh, the people responsible, they won't find their um, um, salvation of their soul anymore um, if there is no uh, justice because uh, justice is a little bit of um, uh, re revenge as well um, and um, um, if they say sorry now uh, we everything is glossed over and we can go uh, on well there won't be any societal peace if the people responsible aren't held responsible in an appropriate way well, maybe I can pick this up um, also in the discussion before. It was about forgiving. Forgiving means that uh, somebody has to stand up to their responsibility. Here, they are asking for forgiveness without naming the responsibility and the mistakes. I've heard uh, an interview, uh, read an interview with Ms. Bibbs, the chair of the Ethic Council, who said, well, um, one shouldn't uh, prosecute and one has to be able to forgive, but she's not even ready to formulate and uh, define her own responsibility. She Is may, she afraid? yeah, maybe I could understand if she were. And uh, then, of course, a legal prosecution has to take place here. And this has to go in both directions. And if people can state their responsibility, well, we're not talking about uh, retaliation as yet, but when you can think about um, forgiveness here, in this case, we are seeing a strong demand for retaliation um, in the case that we've just had at hand here. But if people don't want to take on the responsibility for their action in the past and at least performally ask for forgiveness, you can't forgive. What do you want to forgive? It's not been named. Um, so you have to name it clearly what you want to be forgiven. And um, if, you, if that doesn't take, it can't happen. That's really a uh, very difficult um, situation. Um, it's very good that you should have looked at this in detail again, and it's really uh, terrible what it does to uh, people like you, Ms. Jenny. Um, we have the next uh, guest waiting now, and I'm uh, very happy that we should have looked at it in so much detail. Um, I think that it's really a very poor judgment that went completely wrong, and I hope that it will be corrected in the next in the Court of Appeals. Uh, we have to um, stick with it, and we have to uh, keep it, uh, make it public that um, that it's such a bad judgment now. So I hope that we uh, will be uh, kept up to date by you. And uh, once you have the uh, written uh, uh, opinion by the court, we can then um, discuss it in more detail. Right, thank you very much. Maybe a little word, um, as the problems are so imminent to the system, it's extremely important to go to public, to go public. Absolutely, yes, I, I think it's very important. And I um, really find it very great that you uh, should take this upon you to present this unfair judgment to us now. Well, even if it is only passportoto for other proceedings, although I don't think all of them are as draconic as 
we have it here. It was very illustrating, so I thank Ivan for the presentation as well. It has a completely different view. If you see it there, this way, rather than abstractly talking about what's going wrong, I think that is quite clearly and has an effect. I do think so. Well, that's what we hope to achieve. And as long as Dr. Zhang is on board, we will uh, look for publicity. Um, I think this is very important here because this judgment will be a blueprint. Um, I can say that quite clearly. There are other um, positions where there might be a smaller number of attestations who might not be um, so, uh, so well suited to um, for public presentation, but there are dozens of uh, cases coming down the line, and the public prosecutor is only waiting uh, in the wings uh, to um, prosecute uh, physicians who may have only issued five attestations over the years. And we have to say one more thing, the public prosecutors as well, and that was part of uh, the evidence. Um, when the practice was uh, searched, a, a patient was with uh, Dr. Jung uh, with heart problems who uh, was given an attestation. So there was a physical uh, examination while um, uh, the um, um, uh, police were there. And when the patient left the practice, um, she was intercepted by the um, police and she was informed that she will um, commit a crime if she um, uses the attestation that she was just given. And that was accepted, that was uh, admitted in the course of the um, court case uh, that this happened. Yeah, it's very important that we take action here preventively because this can um, immediately develop to uh, uh, be a reference case. And uh, again, uh, it may be uh, the same thing. And uh, if a doctor only issued 10 certificates, maybe they'll say it's just as bad and the doctor didn't have enough patience or whatever. So thank you, very important. And we keep our fingers crossed that uh, um, the legal system will find back to the rule of law in the next uh, round and in the hearing. So we'll do all we can uh, to achieve this. Okay, thanks for having us. Thank you. This was Dr. Jung and her lawyer, Ivan Kuhnemann, who looked into this verdict. Um, first court, a very tough verdict, two years and nine months without uh, probation for the um, issuing of allegedly false certificates. And um, I would propose that we move on. First, we had planned you and Dr. Wolfgang Bodak, but we have an external guest with you. And if you're ready, I would uh, prefer him uh, to talk to him now, as they have limited time. So we have on, with us um, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. Um, he's a research scientist, president and CEO of the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. Um, so last week we had Dr. Victoria Alexander with us, and she is also um, uh, working or um, um, associated to this uh, institute, which is a non-profit, non-for-profit organization that conducts research in the public interest. Um, can you hear us? I can. Thank you for having me. 
Okay, fantastic. Maybe uh, it would be great if you could maybe give us or the audience a little bit of your professional background so they have an idea, uh, you know, what your specialties are. Well, I'm a biomedical research scientist uh, with a background in evolutionary biology. Primarily, uh, I moved into biomedical research professionally uh, my second year of my postdoc. I was at Penn State University. Uh, I was on a Alfred P. Sloan uh, fellowship for two years. <clears throat> and at this, at this point in time, new technology was being created and used uh, to start to analyze thousands of genes at a time from cancers and other tissues. Um, so it was a high dimensional data analysis paradigm. And I knew that the clinicians that would want to use the technology would not be sufficiently schooled in the area of data analysis and my own background and research in um, the use of molecular sequences, protein sequences, and genome sequences in phylogenetics prepared me fairly well. My graduate training and I had multivariate statistics and some machine learning prediction modeling. So um, I'm an empirical scientist. And I, from 2020, uh, sorry, from 2000 until uh, 2014, I was at the University of Pittsburgh. I was put in charge of a bioinformatics analysis core. I had four staff members. We would meet with clinicians asking all kinds of study uh, questions using all kinds of science. Um, we analyzed genomic data, genetic data, what's called proteomic data. Um, so pro proteins present in serum or cerebral spinal fluid, really focused on the question of the etiology of disease, but also be able to predict the clinical course of disease uh, or treatment. Uh, so there was diagnostic science, there was prognostic science, and it was a great, great gig. Um, all that told, I, by immersion, I became aware of how clinical research is done by practice um, I learned a lot about molecular pathology. I learned a great deal about viruses and bacteria, how they create disease. Um, after 2014, I um, started writing books. My first book was on Ebola because that's the year that Ebola took off in West Africa. And then I, through my book writing, this purely academic exercise of trying to, I tried to write a chapter uh, that celebrated the success of vaccines, and I was terribly disappointed uh, in the quality of the science and the type of science that was used. And so I decided that uh, I would spend a good deal of my research time. I'm no longer at the University of Pittsburgh. I created IPAC because you can't do this kind of research uh, within mainstream academia. They'll cut your funding or they will cut the funding to your entire department if you ask questions about vaccines. So um, anyway, from that period in time, I, I have been um, doing research, uh, some on vaccines, some on the molecular biology, the etiology of disease by the coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, um, uh, looking at aluminum adjuvant toxicity in vaccines and quantifying that to whole body toxicity. I have a good publication record. Um, as an independent scientist, my statistics and publishing are better than when I was uh, you know, a cog in a wheel at a major university. And uh, I used to say that I had the best job in the world at the Bioinformatics Analysis Corps because the scientists there, the clinical researchers would come to 
talk to me long format for an hour about their science. So I learned really well. Now I have the best job in the world because I get to reduce human pain and suffering without any profit motive and keep the bad guys honest. Well, that's what we're trying to do, right? Okay, very interesting. So you brought uh, with you like um, a few different, I mean, a kind of, um, you know, very like a variety of topics. And um, I don't know if you would like to start with the uh, Black Plague, which is where you had some interesting findings. Oh, well, the history has the findings, actually. Um, <clears throat> so we're told that Black Plague as a disease, you know, caused deaths, but it, it, it doesn't take much doing. I got curious one day. Uh, last year, and I said, well, I'm sure that the medical community back then, the physicians, uh, tried to treat the plague. But what if there was iatrogenic disease back then? What if there were adverse events due to treatments back then? And on my side stack, which is popular rationalism, and last month I decided to check my readership. I'm surprised and very happy to say that I have about 40,000 reads a day now on popular rationalism. It kind of blows me away. Um, thank you for everyone that reads and shares that. It's all free, but you can sign up for a paid subscription if you want. But the narrative that I found in the literature was that there were mercury-based treatments for plague and that the symptoms of the people who died from plague compared to the people that didn't die from plague were consistent with mercury poisoning which is rather fascinating, right? So how widespread was this, right? Um, that's an epidemiological question. We don't have real data on that, but it's an interesting possibility that a good amount of the morbidity and mortality that's attributed to uh, to, to the plague bacterium uh, may in fact uh, have been bad medicine. And it's haunting really to think that what we see now that's happening with the deaths and the morbidity and mortality from lack of proper treatment for early treatment of COVID, as I'm sure you you have discussed here, and the uh, serious adverse events and the deaths that follow COVID-19 vaccines and other vaccines and other medicines may have had a completely different trajectory, harking back all the way to the <laughs> to the dark ages, if people had started asking questions about the possible role of how we're treating patients, um, it's it's haunting really to think about what medicine could be if uh, there was more transparency about this and, and earnest interest. You know, in the United States, and I'm going to speak parochially, and I for, I've, I understand um, the population I'm speaking to, um, so I apologize for that. But um, iatrogenic illness caused by medical errors alone, just medical errors, is the number three cause of death. That's independent of when you're not making a mistake and you give the patients the right kind of allopathic medicine per your protocols, per your societies, uh, and so on. So, you know, it, in my mind right now, uh, allopathic medicine is a, a major killer a major killer. It's a major cause of chronic illness, not just vaccines, but certainly very important among them. And again, just the message, if you find that article, and and, and if you share, maybe we can share the link to that article. It is absolutely haunting to think about how many hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by of people doing medicine without asking the right question. Who's going to respond well to this? Who's not going to respond well to it? And are there excess 
illnesses and excess deaths beyond that what we expect the people to accept particular treatments. That's one of the things that I did at the University of Pittsburgh, especially the first three or four years. I worked on biomarkers, serum biomarkers, genetic biomarkers, gene expression biomarkers to predict the outcome of the clinical course of patients who were taking particular um, approaches to treatment for cancer. And the Early Detection Research Network at the National Cancer Institute and, and I, and I, I'm going to say maybe 40 or 50 scientists who were involved, really super optimized how to do pr appropriate prediction science with machine learning um, back 2000 and, 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 uh, 2002 to 2005, I think I would say, um, so that we got very, very good at doing that. Um, and, and now my focus is on creating clinically actionable prediction models to say who's going to get serious COVID, who's going to respond well to certain treatments for COVID, why do certain people get serious COVID and other people don't, who's going to suffer an adverse event from vaccines of all kinds. And, and part of my research fo is focused on the adjuvants, of course, thimerosal, mercury, different various forms of aluminum. And we have a good track record, a publication track record, um, to, the, to the point where we're creating uh, an app for your cell phone so that people who are forced to vaccinate, some are forced to vaccinate their children in the United States, can punch in the doctor's recommendations on vaccines and it will actually calculate the whole body toxicity, how long the child will be in uh, toxic levels, whole body toxicity, using the pediatric dose limit that we published in 2018. So the, this app is about two thirds of the way completed and we're going to be going into beta testing, I think next month, uh, if everything goes well. The purpose of the app is not to convince people to take vaccines or not take vaccines. The purpose of the app is so that parents have a leg to stand on when they say, you're proposing that my child take five vaccines over the next two months. And this tells me, and science tells me, Dr. Lyonsweiler's three publications and the modeling tells me that you're proposing to put my child in whole, whole body aluminum toxicity for the next 180 days. This was a rational approach to then ask the next question, what can we do about that? Can we space them out? Can we find non-aluminum containing vaccines? Is there any vaccines that I might reasonably skip because we don't currently have this disease circulating locally? So these are tough questions for the pediatricians in my country. There may be tough questions for pediatricians for you are too, but they're not tough questions for rational thinking people. Can I ask you, like, with regards to this Black Plague, I'd be interested to, like, how, since it's a while ago, how how is it, was it possible to kind of detect these hints for, uh, you know, for these uh, uh, medical, medical malpractice, basically? Well, I mean, here's the thing. If the physicians at the time knew that mercury was toxic, then it would have been medical malpractice, right? So <clears throat> there, it wasn't my research that did it. There's another article that I cite that kind of innocently really stepped into it. This, this person who wrote this article that I cite gives all the details um, on bad outcomes under the treatments. Now, given what we know, of course, if you know the 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 the, the, the toxins in the makeup in the Victorian era, mm -hmm. that was done out of ignorance. 
Um, now we would never use those. But the specific treatments themselves were known to be tinctures of, of, of toxic substances. And, you know, the, the symptoms of the patients who they're got to ask the question, Black Plague didn't kill everyone who got Black Plague. And so it's a scientific, it's an empirical, it's a clinical question. What's the difference between the two of them? And now we will never have enough data to be able to go and say there, even that there's a significant association of the treatment uh, with these tinctures and so on. But the symptomology of the patients and how the disease progressed were consistent with harm to the immune system. The, the fact that the pathogen itself was made more pathogenic by mercury, which we know ethylmercury and, and methylmercury impair the immune system in a number of ways. You know, the, the first scientist that ever studied the whole cellular effect of thimerosal, which is in the United States used in 60% of influenza vaccines, actually took astrocytes, put astrocytes from a cell culture on a slide and treated them with direct exposure to thimerosal. In our cells, we have a, a highway called the Golgi apparatus that moves proteins that are being constructed in our cell out to the surface where they can be secreted. According to this Japanese research, and I don't have the citation memorized, but the Golgi apparatus dissolved. Thimerosal dissolved the Golgi apparatus. There's no way to have a healthy cell if you don't have a compartment, the lumen inside the cell in which the proteins are supposed to hold. We now have hundreds of papers, maybe thousands every year, focused on endoplasmic reticulum stress or uh, the unfolded protein response. Our cells, if, the, if that lumen or the room in which we fold our proteins, and about a third of our proteins have to be folded using energy from other proteins and enzymes that help them fold. If that room becomes filled with proteins that are not appropriately folded, then the cell starts to swell. And there's two proteins on the surface of the cell that are supposed to be in contact with each other. When the cell swells and it, those two proteins are forced apart, that induces something called the unfolded protein response. And our cells have three potential options. One, stop transcribing genes from the genome to make more proteins and slow that down. There's a cellular response for that. Two, stop translating proteins at the right side of the ribosome. And there's a cellular response to that as a result of this. Or three, die. And if they die, then that cell and all of its strangely folded proteins spill their contents out into the interstitium. Add thimerosal into that. Now you have thimerosal. We know it causes protein, the unfolded protein response. We know it causes ER stress, endoplasmic reticulum stress. Add aluminum into that. We know that aluminum of the type that's used in vaccines also causes ER stress of itself. Now add that there are some people that just genetically have strangely folded proteins because they have mutations in their proteins and they, they can't fold properly. But now you see that there's a genetic risk to sensitivity to thimerosal and, and aluminum that will cause these people to have more cells dying. It's especially dangerous with aluminum because aluminum being an adjuvant for the immune system, you have a cell, it's diseased, that it's filled with strangely folded proteins of any number of type. 
It's filled also with aluminum particles from the vaccine that get into the cell and cause this ER stress. The aluminum particles can be found in, in the nuclear pore of the place where RNA is supposed to come out. In cells that are treated with aluminum from vaccines, you can actually see that the endoplasmic reticulum is glommed up against the nucleus of the cell. So you can't fold your proteins properly if it's toxic enough. But the cell dies and it spills out into the interstitium, the strangely folded proteins and also, and also the aluminum. So you become vaccinated against your own strangely folded proteins, which the human body doesn't see as normal because they're strangely folded. This is a good mechanism for autoimmunity, a good mechanism for all the inflammation that we see in chronic illness and people that have uh, been hyper-vaccinated. So um, the specific evidence to stay on topic with the question is uh, some people did well under uh, Black Plague, some people didn't. And we know, uh, for instance, that mercury also harms our immune system specifically through the inhibition of a protein called ERAP1 and ERAP2. These proteins are the proteins that are responsible for folding at the end stage the antigen-presenting molecules, the proteins that tell the T cells what to go after, okay? So... We're looking at a serious problem with thimerosal because we know it's there's, this, um, there's a Greek team that studied this. They looked at thimerosal and they said this specifically inhibits ERAP1. ERAP1 and ERAP2 are absolutely essential for properly forming uh, our immune proteins. Thimerosal and thimerosal-containing vaccines cause uh, maybe permanent, maybe transient. I don't know, but they cause immune inhibition. At the population level in the United States, I think it was a county level or a state level analysis. I, I looked at the number of doses of thimerosal containing vaccines that were uh, administered. The number one predictor of the number of in new influenza diagnosis in any year was the number of thimerosal containing vaccines administered in that region. Uh, over the last two years. So you've heard it before where people take, I've got my flu vaccine and then I got the worst case of flu ever. Well, that's because you just impaired your immune system. You can't mount a proper immune response. And I bet if IPAC or other agency, other uh, institutions around the world looked at the question of the people who suffered from COVID, breakthrough infections, serious COVID, died from COVID, long-haul COVID, after vaccination. How many of them also got a flu vaccine on the same day that they were vaccinated for COVID? And did that flu vaccine contain thimerosal? I would predict that you're going to see a very strong association between bad clinical outcomes of exposure to thimerosal in an era of COVID in ways that are perfectly understandable from the cellular molecular biology etiology of disease. Um, may I have a question? Uh, it's concerning the very new findings about the spike protein, the toxic spike protein. Uh, do you know this work here? I just presented in my slide. You know it, yeah? How would you, which theory could there be? You know, it, it was, I translated it in, in German. I made 
perhaps just uh, tell the, the audience here in German, <clears throat> they found out Jugendliche und junge Erwachsene, die nach einer Impfung gegen das schwere respiratorische Coronavirus mRNA eine Myokarditis entwickelten, wiesen anhaltend erhöhte zirkulierende Konzentrationen des Spike-Proteins in voller Länge auf, die nicht von Antikörpern gebunden wurden. There were no antibodies. There were just the spike protein floating in the blood of those people who had a myocarditis. And they, they had uh, a lot of, had a number of, of cases and they, they had control groups and everything. And I think it's a very interesting, it's a, a very interesting, uh, work they did. What theories could you uh, uh, offer us, which could explain what we are just hearing? Okay, so thank you for that question. I'm glad you brought it up, and it's very nice to uh, speak to you in person. By the way, I've watched your your work, and um, you know you're one of my heroes. So um, <clears throat> I don't know how that translates, but nevertheless, now now there it is. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but uh, so it is absolutely known. It is a fact that the spike protein of the coronavirus is a very strange spike protein. It has a very strange ability to cause um, two cells to uh, lose the two cells that are side by side to lose their integrity and to uh, bind together. In the heart, as you know, the cardiomyocytes and, and the heart, heart cells, it is extremely important that we have a well-functioning nervous system that's functioning properly with the Purkinje fibers. It's also important that the actual pulses of electrochemical uh, nervous impulses flow in a particular repetitive across the tissue field in a manner that is consistent and regular for proper heart, uh, for heart functioning and beating. And it's also important that the heart cells, the muscles of the heart cells can contract. Well, if you have a spike protein, and there's a couple of studies, uh, some of them may be preprints, and I don't like citing preprints, but there's a couple of uh, resources that can be found that show that the spike protein itself can cause two heart cells that are separated from each other to join by losing. Yeah, they, they actually, the, the, the cell membrane separates. Is it called fusion without? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fusion. And there's actually video of this happening uh, in other settings where you can actually see it happening. So you end up with a multi-nucleated heart cell. It's not going to contract properly. It's not going to beat properly. It's probably not going to do a lot of the basic fundamental biology that heart cells need to do to be healthy heart cells, like uh, get rid of the waste, uh, aerobic respiration, the kinds of things that we would expect any cell in the human body to have to be able to do, it be obviously becomes dysregulated. You've got two nuclei that are competing for control um, over what's happening in this new fused cell. The cell fusion then will cause the death of cells within the heart. The death of the cells within the heart will cause um, infiltration of the immune system macrophages first to remove the cellular debris and the waste. The release of that action of that removal involves cytokines. So it is absolutely important that we come to understand that the, the fusion, the cell fusion by the spike protein, by causing these um, syncytia, the cells that are bound together, they fuse. Mm -hmm. 
is is proof that the spike protein is a toxin. It yes. is itself toxic, and it's it was, very important. This, this what you said, just say was published in March or February uh, by the Paul Ehrlich Institute. They themselves made research on this. They spoke about the fusion without. They spoke about syncytia, which were more than 100 cells, all induced by spike protein floating in in the having contact with with human cells. That's and they knew correct. it. They knew it when they put this vaccine on the market. It's crazy. It's so so cool. the the other the other pathophysiology that we can contemplate. I don't have evidence of this. It would take some study of it. But those strange fibrous blood clot like blockages that happen may start through a process of a syncytium of circulating heart cells. See, our blood is not clear. It's not just red blood cells and white blood cells. Our blood has a ton of exosomes. It has a ton of different circulating cells. It also has dead cells. So what happens if the spike protein causes a syncytium? You mentioned a cluster of hundreds of cells. What happens if in a in a long tube of our veins and arteries, and this may well explain why we're seeing these clots of both veins and arteries, you actually see a growing thread of syncytia that starts slow, and the bigger it gets, the faster it's going to accumulate in an exponential process, and it's going to be fibrous, it's going to be hard and rubbery, uh, because it's made of dead cells that are all connected by the spike protein. Part of the mistake, I think, was that they stabilized this pro this spike protein uh, mRNA too well, so it persists too long, well beyond the point in which it's potentially useful for creating a, a immune reaction if you're going to use it for a vaccine. But also recall that um, the data are in. I'm convinced that uh, some of our cells take up the mRNA into the genome through uh, reverse transcriptase. And if that's the case, then our, some of our cells are producing de novo versions of the spike protein, which is a toxin. And now the ultimate immunologic fate of those cells, of course, should be that they die. But that doesn't help the fact that we have created a factory, a spike protein factory in any number of our tissues around the body. Yes, and um, we... I think they found out that those those children, they were young adults and children, they observed. And they I think when I remember well, I have to look it up again. When when they found out that uh, those those uh, children or those patients that where they found the spike protein, that they had a different, uh, they had less antibodies. Is it right? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I why that? I'm. I'm Going to, I'm going to speculate a little now, right? So I, I'm, mm -hmm. I, I learned this during my doctoral dissertation defense, actually, when I had to ask one of my committee members, you've asked me the same question three different ways. I'm not going to answer because I don't know the answer. But is it okay with you, with your permission? I will guess. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, they, they, the authors, they say uh, that there is a lot of science to be done. So, so you're with them then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so this is speculative, which is different than saying that we know that the spike protein is a toxin, okay? But this is speculative. And my speculation on this um, is that uh, the body has a different immune response to autologous cell death than infection, right? Mm -hmm. 
If the vaccine is supposed to mimic an infection, if the vaccines are killing our cells, it's more like a tissue injury. All right. There's a completely different immune response to tissue injury. It's the same immune system. And when I teach my course at IPAC EDU, which is all online, I had 107 students take my biology of immunology course last year. The first lecture that I give is about tolerance. It's the most important thing about our immune system, knowing self from non-self. It's important for developmental biology. It's important so we don't kill ourselves with our own immune system through autoimmunity. It's important for cancer. And then we also, by the way, have to deal with pathogens. Most people think pathogens are the most important thing. No way. Our immune system handles pathogens with seven layers of defenses, hands down. It's having, it's, it's like on a nuclear sub, the most important thing on a nuclear sub is not that you can feed your sailors. It's that you don't have a problem with your nuclear reactor, right? <laughs> and the, the, the autoimmune attack that we see involves cell death, recruitment of the immune system to the local. And it's the same thing with brain injury. It's the same thing with any injury. Yeah, You're going to get an immune response anytime you get tissue injury, but it's a fundamentally different immune response than infection. So they're, they're off their mark with the spike protein because they're causing this other autologous attack, you know, immunoreactogenic proteins within ourselves that are, we then have a problem. Of course, at the when I published my paper on pathogenic priming in April 2020, I made cellular predictions, I made tissue predictions on which proteins were likely to be the problem for autoimmunity. But it still kind of amazes me that this particular virus has so many possible ways of inducing autoimmunity compared to other other viruses. It's just remarkable. You mean the virus, the coronavirus, or you mean the spike? Both. So spike protein is number two in terms of the number of uh, autoreactogenic epitopes. There's, uh, I think it's the end, and what is it, the end? Uh, um, mp3 or something um but but it's really remarkable now when i published that i didn't have any laboratory data but aristo Vajdani and his colleagues at harvard university took my analysis repeated it extended it and validated that yeah the b cells uh in our immune systems will become autoreactogenic if they respond to this again and i've been saying this since 2015 we have to take out the unsafe epitopes the unsafe parts of the proteins if you're going to have a vaccine program. In the United States, our regulatory our regulatory requirements for producing vaccines do not require the testing of safety for excipients or ingredients. The aluminum, you don't have to do dosage safety. Uh, mercury, you don't have to do dosage safety testing. For the proteinaceous part of the vaccine, it is required. There is no yes. dosage safe safety testing on these. And it's now we can yes. modify the mRNAs, and I'm not advocating for it, but they could take out the unsafe epitopes, right? There, so, are, so, there are so many mock-up vaccines where they just change the antigen and they leave all the other stuff inside, which they some years ago had some works on, so they just use it again and again. And I think this is a very blind fly. They are flying a blind flight. They don't yeah, know where I, they I, fly. I, I, Absolutely, and that is exactly why um, the, the the vaccines that were developed that also used uh, a, a, another virus, a modified virus, um, failed. 
because you have to suffer the pathophysiology of what that modified virus uh, proteins were doing. Yes. Well, at the same time, your immune cells are under attack. All the tissues are under attack. Um, it's just a it's just a wreck. This entire thing is is a wreck. And it's a good thing that we have science alive and well, in spite of guys like Anthony Fauci and uh, the CDC, the US CDC, who would just prefer not, and the FDA, they all recently acknowledged they're no longer going to wait for peer-reviewed science when they make their policies. They, they might, they're gonna rely more on these preprint servers, um, which I think is a big mistake. We do need to have, some checks and balances on what people are saying, especially, you know, given the fraud that happened, outright fraud on the ivermectin story uh, of, of just fake data uh, showing an ivermectin, you know, doesn't oh, work. Or producing those dying people from overdosing hydroxychloroquine with a, this in the beginning That's, of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, Merrill Merrill Nass is a good friend of mine, Dr. Merrill Nass, and she she outed them for that and brought an end to that trial. I don't know how many lives she saved, but she deserves yeah. an award. And that's worse than fraud, right? I don't know why in the United States we do something like that. You're not charged with murder. And I'm not being dramatic. I really Sorry. mean it. There's a there's a, 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 a in Michigan, in the United States, there's a doctor who was diagnosing patients with cancer who never had cancer so he could bill for the chemotherapy. And instead of giving them saline and saying, oh my gosh, look how well these vitamins are helping you to tolerate, he actually gave them the chemo. And some of them died. And he's been given 70, this is, this is in my book, Cures versus Profits, 75 years in prison. Well, where's the civil law in that? Why did the sheriff's department not arrest him and also charge him with murder? You know there is a there is a systematic corruption in in our country too, because you know the the hospitals are paid. There are those on and this, the health insurances get money from the from the central fund when they have very ill people, and whether those people are very ill or not, they find out with the data. The data the doctor deliver was the doctor gives the diagnosis, and the doctor earns more if he has more diagnosis, and the health insurance gets more money when there are more diagnosis and whether the diagnosis was right or not this is controlled by by checking it or matching it with the medicines they take so if you have some psychological problems and you don't take 180 days a year and a psycho a psycho drug you don't have a psychic disease so they care for you that you take at least 180 days you take this drug and there are many many other incentives like that that the people get drugs so that the health insurance can get some more money for out of the fund and that the doctor he he who follows this he also gets some money for this so it's it's horrible what happens like that there is no indication for such things except this indication for the, the doctor sees how he can earn money and the, yeah. the insurance the insurance too they follow it it's in the system it's yeah. politicians yeah. who made it like this and the yeah. pharmaceutical industry is behind it yeah, absolutely. So these perverse incentives, uh, Dr. Paul Thomas and I actually quantified the perverse incentives in the pediatric vaccination schedule. We have that, we have that published in the International Journal of Vaccine Theory Research and Practice. Uh, but in, with COVID, remember that um, before they started really seeing lots of uh, hospitalizations, they said, go home and get as sick as you can first. No treatment, no chicken soup, no nothing. And they also, this happened right after the lockdown. We had a three month starvation period for allopathic medicine, big medical centers, hospitals, 
but they have no revenue. So you starve their budgets for three months and make them dependent on this for survival. And you say for every admission to the ICU, for every admission to the hospital, yes. for every diagnosis, uh, for every um, hospitalization, for every, every test, for every for test, every, for every test, for, for, for every person put on a ventilator. And then the, the sickest part, of course, is for every death. If you have a positive financial incentive for death, then you're really doing something horrible. But, you know, another part of my research is I, I created with Dr. Singhang Lee and a lot of other people here in the States, something called the Nucleic Acid Assay Technology Evaluation Consortium, because I could tell in May, by May of 2020, that the way that the CDC decided to construct the PCR and use the PCR test using RT-PCR in a non-quantitative way, without internal controls, <laughs> that they would be able to use high thresholds. And we now see huge numbers of false positives. And it's really odd that public health decided to pronounce. So I, 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 listen, I'm a good actor, right? So when I saw this happening, the first thing I did was I wrote emails uh, to Peter Marks at the FDA. And I said, for the companies that you have turned to, to get emergency youth authorization of your PCR tests for COVID, you have required proof and evidence that their kits can detect the virus when it's present, but you haven't put the demand to them to require that they actually show you that it won't detect the virus when it's not present. What they did instead was they just used bioinformatics. They took the sequences of their primers that are used in the in the kit and they blasted them or compared them to the human genome and said, there's no problem here. That is not empirical evidence of any kind. The FDA wrote back to me and said, thank you, Dr. Lyonsweiler, we'll take your <clears throat> comments under advisement. And then we ended up with an arbitrarily high cycle threshold that was used every time. Yes, if you know yes. any, all molecular biologists who do PCR will understand that unless you have an internal control on PCR tests, there's variation in the initial sample material that you pipette. There's variation from investigator to investigator, or lab tech to yeah, lab tech. The labs, and the, the, the labs even, yeah, the labs published that they only analyze the e-gene because they want to bigger, uh, put through, uh, they wanted to make more tests because it's easier. They, they only took the eating. Right. So it's it was right. and, and, and being, an being an evolutionary biologist, then I watched as the PCR test started to fail also to detect, right? So you re will recall that the South African variant, as it was called, and started spreading in the UK, that there was something called the S gene dropout. Well, some Brainiac decided to put one of the primers on the spike protein, the immunologic target of our immune system and of the vaccine. And lo and behold, that one of those primers dropped out. They called it S-gene dropout. Well, for four months, we had S-gene dropout before this to be the UK, the, sorry, the, the South African variant, as it was called at the time. Uh, with people who had that variant, you couldn't detect it because they had two out of three PCR rule. You have two, you have three primer pairs. If two out of three or three or better light up, then you have COVID or they have the presence of the virus. Well, if one of those primer pairs drops out, you've dropped your sensitivity to 50%. So 50% of the people were just walking away from the PCR test saying, hey, I don't have the, I don't have the virus. 
That if, is, if they walk away like that, they didn't have it. Yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, listen, the three, yeah, the three out of three, but it's the it's the failure of the kit. So the false, the false, the false negatives were a problem. Well, uh, Andrew Rambo is a very famous uh, virologist. He's published in Nature and, and Science and so on. And I called him out. Uh, I started a thread between him and a bunch of evolutionary virologists and biologists. And I said, Andrew, why are you saying it's a good thing that the S gene dropout happened? Because he's, he published this in Science or so. Uh, and uh, he was also, by the way, in that in that group that Anthony Fauci called to discuss, let's, let's, let's make the lab origin thing go away. So Andrew um, wrote back and said, I'm not sure that you're interpreting what I said correctly. Um, well, if you celebrate the S gene dropout, because now we have a way to diagnose the difference between this variant and that variant, and that there's some clinical or meaningful difference there, that's ad hoc. It's not by design. We can just design tests to find the differences. But it's also then very odd because the next year we had S gene dropout happen again without changing to the variants. There's something very strange about these PCR tests. So the, the high false positive rates, Dr. Singhang Lee, Milford, Connecticut, United States, we funded his research and he's published now that we have a huge false positive rate using PCR for detection. But public health is very strange. This public health tried to convince everyone from the beginning without any data that there was zero false positives. Yeah. Um, including the state epidemiologists of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I was giving testimony uh, during a case where they wanted to shut down a restaurant who wouldn't follow the public health uh, demands. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the state epidemiologists submitted written testimony, which I hadn't seen. And I submitted my written testimony. And my written testimony, I, I showed four studies. I shared four studies that showed false positives with the PCR. She wrote, there are no false positives with PCR. You think that we would win the case. Instead, the judge threw away the written testimony and took and took oral testimony only. And the lawyer for this Commonwealth of Pennsylvania decided to attack my credentials on whether or not I was expert in the things I was commenting on. And if you go and read my Wikipedia page, it was a result of that attack on me. That I, that's the reason why I have a Wikipedia page. They don't want me testifying. So. Mm -hmm. We have to hold these people accountable for their wrongdoing. It's not enough simply to say that they were wrong, they made a mistake, they didn't know no, what they, they were doing. There they were many criminals about them. Yes. Yeah. We were speaking about the criminal side of all of this all the yeah. time. Yeah. And um, there is not only the law, the, the judges and the and the courts, there is also the, the science, the institutes. There are when you this one I just showed uh, this all from from Yanka and others. They also speak about a very serious disease. They also speak about very dangerous coronaviruses. Still, we have to be careful and so on. They they go on with frightening people, and for sure there in most of those even in the critical studies where you find something which is which is questioning the the narrative. You always find some, at the end or so, you find that, yes, it's a very serious thing and we have to go on making research. And this only shows me that those people, they don't dare to say we have, we are just, we are just working within a big pile of hoax. When we, they, 
they don't dare to say it because they wouldn't have, find any sponsors anymore. That's and true. it is so sad to see this gesture in those works, those scientific works, always this gesture of, of oh, yes, but uh, this is very serious. Although they find the, find out the opposite, that the people are damaged with with the, with the so-called with the so-called vaccines. Yeah, uh, so, absolutely. So so think about also the fact that in Fauci's, I call it Fauci's protocol. He's not a medical doctor to treat these kinds of conditions. He told everybody, just go home and stay home for ten days. Get it. See if you get seriously ill. If you have tested positive for COVID, in an era of COVID where you have a one hundred percent specificity that is no false positives um okay maybe but in an era of covid where 40 or 50 more percent of the people that are testing positive don't have the virus it, we, you, we did not have any tests all those not, hundreds of years and we knew how not, to deal with the flu this is true but, was, I'm, 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 but I, hang on just a minute because i'm pointing a finger at the malfeasance the, the malfeasance is sending people home with a false positive covid test and telling them not to seek any other medical care until you're so sick you have to go to the emergency room. What about respiratory syncytial virus and influenza? Yes. What, about, what, about, what about bacterial pneumonia, yes. which is treatable with antibiotics? Those people got seriously ill. Those people were hospitalized for COVID. Those people were treated for COVID, not the disease that they had. And they have the they they have the chutzpah to accuse me of not knowing what I'm talking about. That medical malfeasance happened all across the world. Yes. Yes. It's Remember so good. You know, disappear. The, you, you, disappear. this will be very interesting for future scientists who want to find out what happened in the medical system. You know, when you see all the files of patients and most of them are digitalized now, this may be, it may be easier to find out what the doctors thought of and what they had to forget. Yeah. And because the, the hospital told them not to think of such things, and it's it's so, so the the way how people did their medical practice has changed completely in the last three years. Yeah. There were blind, there were giant blind spots produced by the propaganda the, of in the doctor's eyes, and there were other blind spots which were produced by um, money incentives. So you can, you can easily, we have so many cases, so many files from hospitals, you could, from the health insurance data, you could very easily find out this systematic, really very, very big systematic bias, which, which, uh, help, which helped those propaganda people to make up their stories, it's so it's yeah, it's so, there's so much so much lie. The fact that influenza just basically disappeared and from CDC's records and 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 bacterial pneumonia and so on. So yeah. these people that died from pneumonia, right, that they couldn't recover with their with their non-COVID and non-protocol for COVID, those were unnecessary deaths. And then you know. You're talking about in the future. Well, right now, there's a solution to this. It's still not too late. Any hospital can sequence using Sanger sequencing. Right? The FDA acknowledges, at least in the United States, that Sanger sequencing is the gold standard, not see, not the PCR test. This non-quantitative PCR test can't be a gold standard for COVID. It doesn't work that way. You have to sequence it. So if you have a sufficient... Uh, and Dr. Singhang Lee, to his credit, he's a great humanitarian. He was, he was here... He was here last yeah. time. We, we spoke with him. Yeah. Yeah. He published the primer sets for his clinical tests for COVID. He doesn't want to make a million, and he doesn't want to. 
He doesn't want to become a millionaire and he doesn't want to do all the testing. Any hospital can do this confirmation test and rule out COVID. The fact that Peter Marks and the other people at the FDA have been doing nothing about this means that they need to step down. And um, we're not going to stop. We're not going to rest until they're out. And it's so easy. You even can make such a, a multi-testing where you have 26, 26 germs at the same time. You have virus and, and bacteria. It's, it's the same like the PCR test. You make it with a similar machine. It's similar fast. And you have a, you have something more if there's really symptoms. You know, it's, there's oh, no use making such things with people without symptoms. I agree. As, a, as an expert in complex um, um, uh, diagnostic pathology, we absolutely should only test people who are symptomatic or who spent a long time with somebody who was proven by sequencing to have the, the virus. You're right about that. Yeah, but you, you should we? There's, the next question would be those people working in clinics with, uh, with, uh, with cases and have cases, have contact with cases. Should we, should we make diagnosis if they feel well? No, no, we shouldn't. Of course, so so even now today, we don't recognize that the unvaccinated people who have measles confer a booster dose of infection to the vaccinated if the vaccine works. The yeah. Japanese researchers recognized this years ago. So yeah. I'm sure that people that get COVID underneath this uh, ridiculous definition of having COVID from having a PCR test positive or even having a virus. We get viruses all the time, but not disease. You're right about that. Yes, so it's a big mess. Yeah, it, it is, and I'm happy to say that our journal, Science, Public Health Policy, and the Law, which is uh, peer-reviewed, you know, published a traditional, long-standing protocol by Dr. David Brownstein that is very effective for all respiratory viruses and other respiratory pathogens. He's simply decided that he was going to continue doing the same medical practice he's always done in his practice. Um, the, you know, it's funny because uh, when COVID really started taking off in terms of numbers uh, and numbers of, Ill, you know, he called me and he said, what do you think about this? I, uh, he goes, it's kind of scary, right? And he told me that his staff decided that they were not going to come into work next week. And he says, what are you talking about? We know what we're doing. And he started treating them with high dose vitamin D, high dose, you know, vitamin A, high dose vitamin C, ozone injections, um, peroxide injections. And uh, he had a, when he published that case series, he had what 102, I think, patients that he treated, no deaths. This is when in an era where they were saying you're going to get, you know, 20 percent deaths in diabetics. So, you know, we have the science on our side. We have the data on our side. Now what we have to focus on is, unfortunately, using political influence to change policy uh, informed by, as you know, real evidence not contrived evidence um yeah. the guys the guys like fauci who had a meeting with edward holmes and christian anderson and andrew rambo and robert gary and drosten to try to make the story of the laboratory origin go away we know about that because laboratory origin is really kind of cool to talk about right it really gets you but what other calls do you have to change policy without science to dictate from his office what everyone must think. And, you know, he's, he's a failure. His, his, he's one of the greatest scientific failures of all time. You know, I, I refuse to make people fear 
have fear from laboratory produced germs because when you when you make a make a dangerous germ there you it has to reproduce it has to be spread and mm -hmm. it only can spread when the people are healthy if they get if it's dangerous and people get ill and they stay at home it doesn't spread so well those those viruses are the most successful that you don't even feel yeah. and well, there's, uh, evolution, there's an evolutionary evidence that labor dangerous laboratory respiratory dangerous laboratory viruses it's a, i'm i'm not interested in them they earn money with, with making such games they get money from the defense department to 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 build some new weapons and like other useless <laughs> weapons yeah, yeah and they frighten us with those vep weapons but, right. but they cannot really it, they those weapons the viruses they construct they cannot do us harm they can well, do harm they, to the family of the researcher. They can do harm in a small, perhaps, surrounding. Yeah. But they can never make a pandemic. Right. right. What you're talking about is the trade-off between transmissibility and virulence. And believe it or not, within the virology uh, and public health literature, there's been a change in the definition of virulence. Right. So virulence, when I think about virulence, it's the ability to you know, infect tissue and cause disease. Right. Yes. But they want to confuse and say virulence is transmission. And you see this in the press, too. Oh, my gosh, this variant it's is more non, transmissible. Yeah, they did so the same I, with the herd immunity. They only said right. herd right. immunity is only when you get vaccinated. <laughs> right. Right. As if they can change reality just by these yeah, semantic yeah. definitions. They're not. They, they can't change reality this way. But this trade off between the transmissibility and the virulence is extremely well known. The, the more transmissible you are. You have to be less virulent to be transmissible by definition because the deadly viruses yes, take out true. their hosts. Right. It's, right. it's patently obvious. It's like virology 101. So you're right that we should be That's less right. concerned. We should be less concerned about that. And then also because we may have 50% false positives, yeah. we can all reduce they, our fear factor by at least 50%, however afraid you are. Yes. Reduce it by 50% across the board right now. And they, they had to produce something to frighten us. So they had they had to be some dead people. And they did it with hydroxy with hydroxychloroquine and they did it with ventilators and they did it with putting old people from from mm -hmm. into into intensive care and all all those cruel things they did and they produced some dead people. Not not all over the world, but in some sense centers where there, there were cameras and they showed right, them right. and they frightened us and in this in the same time they made this nonsense pcr test and they said this is it when the pcr test then this is the same thing from the lab and the same thing that people die from and the test is representing this dangerous illness they made up those three things they used three yeah. things they produced dead people right. the horrible pictures they produced some dangerous virus in a lab where we can discuss on the on the sequences and everything. And then they made this nonsense PCR test, which produced so-called cases. And That's this right. is the whole story. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. So the, the fundamental shifts that took place include changing the diagnosis of COVID to PCR positive. Uh, died with is equal to died from that all of that, we can never yes. forget that all of these shifts in reality and how we understand things 
Um, it's not as though we don't know this, right? It's, they, we now know, and there are people who are in very powerful positions whose lives have been destroyed because of the, the pack of lies that they called COVID-19. And, you know, I'm not one to say I'm not going to worry. If I lived next, if I lived in Wuhan Institute for Virology, I would move. <laughs> if I lived near it, I would move, right? Because you're near a, 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 an epicenter. Okay, fine. Um, but the 11 million, Chinese, 11 million you, people living there, 11 did million. You, did you consider, uh, Dr. Vodan, uh, that um, COVID relatives, SARS-CoV-2 relatives have come into the human population every year uh, for as long as anyone has been a human being, probably, yes, the ancestors. Yes. And the people, what you're saying is, okay, so SARS-CoV-2 actually has an ancestor an ancestral sequence that's different from RAT uh, uh, G13 uh, is called HKU33. Hmm. But nobody knows about this. HKU33 yeah. has the same exact three prime epitope, uh, sorry, uh, what is it called? Functional motif pattern as SARS CoV 2. But it hmm. just looks like a normal SARS yeah. vi virus in, in, in the literature. So a truly deadly virus from China that's in nature that comes into humans will give someone bad respiratory illness and they die, maybe some relatives die, and they're going to be given some nondescript diagnosis. But the, 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 the manifestation of new deaths that never would have happened include, of course, as we've discussed, going home and getting as sick as possible for 10 days. That's never happened before in the history of medicine. And that's because public health took over allopathic medicine. It was a, it was a, a hostile takeover of allopathic medicine. Its takeover is complete. And why do they do that? They do that because they have a product that's a billion dollar drug for eternity. It's paid for by the government, it's liability free. And they've created this for-profit medical institution of big medical centers that in a capitalist, a truly capitalist society requires competition over prices. Yeah. Instead, they price fix through the market and it needs infinite growth. You, so you have to have more and more and more sick people if everyone's going to get a bonus or a raise. You're, yeah. if you're going you, to be able to afford this inflated parasite that's on our back of allopathic medicine. We do need to downsize, and it's going to be awful. It's go they're undergoing an implosion right now. It's, the it's so it's so there is one switch where you can switch all this off. No patent on drugs anymore, and then everything is gone, and the whole the whole market is 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 crashing. It's de decentralizing, yeah. and um, yes, this will be this will change a lot. This will change a lot. My cat has just switched <laughs> off my camera. Just to say. Um, I think there's a, I, there's a conspiracy underway. Uh, <laughs> on the tape. Can I can I ask something in the meantime? Uh, you said that this definition of the uh, virulence sense um, that that has had changed. Could you tell tell me like what it was before and to what it was changed? Oh, sure. So the CDC formally announced the definition of COVID as evidence of the presence of the virus, right? Okay. So symptomatic people have disease by definition. Asymptomatic people don't have disease. Disease is something wrong with your body. 
if I happen to go to the grocery store and I pick up a influenza virus, but I'm immune, I have the virus, but I don't have the disease. This is our fundamental understanding forever about respiratory viruses. To say that simply because someone tested positive means that you're subjecting all of humanity to the risk of being considered or having a disease when you're perfectly healthy and you can handle the infection, if it doesn't even go to infection. We have the mucosal immunity. What's an infection if your immune system uh, kills all the cells that become infected before you even feel a single symptom? You, you don't have a disease. Um, it'd be like saying everybody who tests positive for a lump of breast cancer on a mammography has breast cancer. The evidence of the potential of having a disease is conflated with actually having a disease. You have to do a confirmatory test. Rochelle Lewinsky of the CDC before COVID actually published that, hey, it'd be really interesting someday to use RT-PCR this way to diagnose respiratory illnesses, but it would require a confirmatory test that has 100% specificity. It's very simple, right? What are the, uh, therape what are the therapeutic consequences? Mm -hmm. The therapeutic consequences of false positives or of the diagnostic of a, of a correct diagnosis of a virus <clears throat> uh, that varies a lot from patient to patient right so if um if you've been isolated for a long time and you have a, a, a an advanced infection then your clinical course may be very different than someone who has an early detection the benefit of early detection for me anyway is that you can take harmless interventions to reduce the severity of your illness. The exact opposite of what public health wants you to do. And, and this depends know. on the this depends on viruses. So if you take some vitamin D or if you do it, it I think it's the same. You you just uh, help your immune system to work. But uh, yeah. what don't we know about ivermectin, for instance, with other viruses with uh, um, yeah, you're getting outside of my wheelhouse. I'm not an expert in that, but uh, maybe you've had Pierre Corey here on this. But uh, I'll say this much that, you know, it is a shame that our clinical approach to COVID had, still to this day does not include a consideration of whether the person has a prior existing autoimmune condition when all of the studies show that the people who progress to serious COVID and are hospitalized basically 80% of them have prior autoimmunity. People uh, that don't have prior autoimmunity, it's only about seven or 8% of those uh, that end up, uh, uh, you know, sorry, people that are not hospitalized or have serious COVID, only seven or 8% of them have prior autoimmunity. Yeah. So that, then, yeah. that then leads to the greater question on therapeutics, which is what do we do about autoimmunity? If we have people walking around that have TH1, TH2 skew, where they have um, elevated TH2, what's causing it and how do we reverse it? So this is a very healthy combination between um, uh, the germ theory and the terrain theory. If your terrain is unhealthy, what can you do to make it better able to handle germs? Mm. Yeah. This has this question you were just talking about has perhaps to do with the further necessary science on, on the findings of this group. Well, possibly there's a there's a large literature establishing those the, the, those rates for sure. Mm -hmm. So um, when it comes to 
vaccine injury then or vaccine mortality. I'm not sure it maps that way because the spike protein itself is so toxic. I don't know, and I don't mean to scare anyone who's vaccinated, but I don't know what the long-term health is going to be. And I'm not sure it involves something that's easily predicted by TH1, TH2 skew, because it kind of, I think it, 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 it may depend on whether or not they can clear of their body cells that are producing spike protein or not. Uh, you know, can they mount an appropriate immune reaction to future uh, coronavirus infections? Mm-hmm. Or are they going to be subjected to an- an- antibody dependent enhancement? It's a game of, it's a completely different game when it comes to the vaccinated. So when it comes to COVID, if you've been infected with COVID vaccinated or not, congratulations on your, on your broad, diverse and deep, uh, especially if you were sick, uh, probably lifelong immunity. But if you're vaccinated and you've never had COVID, I have no idea what your clinical course is going to be. I can't even begin to speculate, not just from the damage from the spike protein, but what's, what's it going to look like? And this is where uh, Geert van der Bosch's uh, concerns are may have some relevance, not in that there's going to be mass casualty events of millions of people um, dropping dead from COVID because they can't fight off the virus. But if you're vaccinated, what are you going to do when your immune system itself is attacking itself through autoimmunity from the vaccine? That's right. I think it's less the escape of of, of new viruses, but it's more uh, the, the how how our immune system is damaged by the by these jabs. This is the more this is the reason, and we should we should not think of this of those more dangerous viruses escaping this is the same story for me as with the labs you know i th- i think van der bosch is not right with this da- new danger with escaping viruses but there is something which is very dangerous which is which is uh, the the consequence of of those jabs in in the very very vast population this is that our immune system is not reacting it was betrayed there was some there was some was some stuff produced suddenly which would never go, come there and it it's really unusual thing that never can happen and our body has never learned to deal with such things and so we don't know what will happen and there are so so there are billions of those nanoparticles everywhere in the body which they were lying on us too they they are everywhere and we see so many symptoms people who have pain suddenly somewhere here and suddenly there and so they have some paralysis in the right hand or they cannot see very well and all that happen in the same time or some days one symptom comes one after the other and they don't fit together we don't know any disease which is going along with such different symptoms at the same time that's right it's it's the, the these confusing algas and and these uh, autoimmune diseases that are hard to diagnose and so i've been in contact with a good number of physicians who are speculating and looking into protocols for recovering from covid-19 vaccination problems and they that the FLCC doctors, Dr. Hanley Ely, they're converging to long fasting as a way to purify the body because fasting causes your body to make a choice. What's my healthy tissue and what's my sick tissue? I have to do autophagy. I have to destroy some tissue. The cells that are uh, 
confused because of the presence of spike protein or syncytia. Now, I am concerned that somebody that goes on a fast, if they have syncytia all throughout their heart and they're somehow managing that and it's not that bad, that they might then have myocarditis set in as a result of this. So we really have to do any of that through under the supervision of a, of a qualified doctor. Um, but, you know, the, the answer to um, the clinical course for the vaccinated is, is an open question. And uh, I, I just wish everyone well. I hope that there are protocols to reduce and, and mitigate that. And I think part of that is to make sure that you have a balanced immune system. There's a brilliant, a brilliant doctor by the last name of uh, Donna Parthi I met in Georgia. Uh, he had a, a display of papers on. I could tell by the papers that he displayed that he knows how to take someone who has TH2 bias and move them to TH1, TH2 skew. And he's really on top of it because I met him six months later and he said, oh, that last protocol I told you about, I've updated it because I found something better. So he's treating his patients and improving the, 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 the body and the immune system so they're better able to handle these complexities whether it's infection or autoimmunity from vaccines great um, could you could you pass the his his uh, email to to corvin i think it would be very interesting to speak with him yeah he's brilliant he's he's he's, he's absolutely brilliant um i like him a lot too he's good he's a good doctor uh, but then the, the 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 what is it the elephant in the room is we know it causes th2 skew It's aluminum adjuvants in, in vaccines causes TH2 skew. That's the, probably the number one cause of autoimmunity and chronic illness until COVID vaccines. You know, I, I was president of the RUMA self, uh, how do you go, NGO for people with rheumatism in, in northern Germany, and there were 12,000 members. And uh, I just followed, uh, I followed the, the newsletters. And so there are more and more people now showing up and said, after this jab, I got some days after I got aggravation of, of, my, of my symptoms, and it lasted for several weeks or even a year. And then after some time, and I got therapy, it was improving a little bit. So they, they were very much suffering It was uh, it was just getting worse, and yeah. this is because rheumatism very often is an autoimmune deficiency, and and if this if such a if such a task for the immune system or such a disturbance uh, comes in addition to what is already not going well, yeah. I think this is very dangerous for the people. Yes. So, yeah, it, they, it is. And remember, the vaccinated live in a world where they're also going to be exposed to the virus. And so if you have an altered or skewed immune system that's trying to fight off an extinct virus, and then yeah. they're confronted with a new virus, and you have uh, um, um, immune suppression, transient or not, um, yes, then your rheumatoid arthritis, and all over the world, we're seeing flare-ups of autoimmunity, just as I predicted in April 2020. And if you look yes. at your calendar, What was happening? And by the way, I'm not I'm not boasting. My paper was not on a preprint server. My paper was published April 2020 through peer review. So I don't like that people are making a public health policy based on these preprint servers because they can get it out fast. That's um, just a, an open area for fraud. I'm a believer in peer review if it's done well. We have a question from the audience, and th this is um, if you know anything about like shedding of this mRNA uh, from vaccinated to unvaccinated people. Do you have any research, any studies? 
That's a great question. So yes, and please distinguish between shedding of mRNA nanoparticle and shedding of spike protein. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where I was going with it. So until the data came in, right, we were told, listen, the, the spike protein is not going to integrate into the genome. <coughs> the mRNA won't be reverse transcribed into the genome. But then we saw studies that came on and said, look, it's, it's, it's happening. So a person that's producing de novo spike protein from an integrated mRNA spike protein gene, I guess we'll call it, or sequence, um, can very well probably uh, share the spike protein. Uh, think about blood donors, right? The, you have autologous, autologously produced, autonomously produced spike protein. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important if you want to avoid the spike protein to, to bank your own blood or to have a group of people who are not vaccinated that uh, are the same blood type that will sign a card that says, these are my blood donors. You know, it might not be something that can do if you're, if it's a dire emergency, but certainly for serious surgery where there's a risk of blood loss, you can, you can protect yourself and your family. Um, in terms of shedding of um, <clears throat> the mRNA itself, as I mentioned earlier, I think they made a mistake by stabilizing this, the, the mRNA uh, by, its, and by changing two of the amino acids to prolines. We have in our bodies endogenous normal enzymes that would chop up basically any nucleic, nucleic acid that is found in the blood. The study that uh, Dr. Wodong brought up about circulating spike protein, I think it's an interesting question. Um, if our we have free, free circulating spike proteins, um, mRNA, or free circulating spike protein that's in exosomes, right? Then mm -hmm. there's circumstances under which you could imagine that there could yeah. be a small amount of transfer from person to person. But I don't, I don't imagine that anyone would exhale, you know, a, 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 basically become a virus, right? A virus because there's not enough cellular machinery encoded in that, uh, or you know, just shedding off, or like literal shedding off the skin or something. Um, but if you if you detect the mRNA in um, semen, which is a scientific question, that's a good one to ask. I don't have the answer to that. Breast milk, we know, yeah, you know, you're going to you're going to be seeing some transmission. So shedding is probably better a better. It's not a good word for this as opposed to, you know, true viral shedding. What you want to do is stop epidemiology and, and you want to look for transmission. Is there an agent of transmission? So there's a whole forensic science for looking at that and it's, it involves molecular testing. But I think things are so far along now with so many people exposed to so many other people that are vaccinated, so many different ways with different vaccines. I don't think we'll ever get to the answer to that. Um, I think uh, if the spike protein is a protein and comes on some surface of, uh, of another person, there is this normal immune reaction on strange proteins, which is functioning. Yeah. I cannot imagine that a spike protein going into your mucosa somewhere here from someone else, <laughs> even if it's a toxic one that our body does not manage. I think this is not a danger. And uh, as you say, when you trans, trans when you have transfer uh, blood from from 
person where the where spikes are included, then it, it might be dangerous, I think, too. And uh, But I, th I think with the nanoparticles, maybe they are even in the mucosa they are even they are even spreading so you, you can you can vaccinate by spitting <laughs> i don't know but but i don't know how much whether the dose does something or whether the, what happens then in the mucosa cells whereas well, in, the, in the cells of the contact surface uh, what happens with those nanoparticles there uh, nobody knows Right. We have, we have this beautiful mucosal immunity. We have innate immunity. There's seven layers of innate immunity before we even get to adaptive immunity, right? So I suppose if somebody has a massive laceration and someone else bleeds into them or something, you know, it's hate to be so graphic, but it's it's really unlikely. It doesn't mean I'm I'm not defending it as an okay thing. I'm just saying I'm 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 asked, you know, what's the likelihood and what do I think about it? Oh. Now as Karl Popper taught us, it only takes one case to disprove that hypothesis that it's, you know, is it happening or not happening? Yeah. So maybe sometimes it is. I, I, I can't quantify that, though. I don't know any big epidemiological study looking for that. You know, this the those cases of young children in Great Britain and now having this hepatitis, uh, autoimmune hepatitis, <laughs> but they were not vaccinated, the children themselves. They even did not look whether the parents got the, the, the this AstraZeneca stuff yeah. or not. They could so easily find out some correlation about this risk because they they always they always found a vector which is similar to this uh, or found, found right, right. adenoviruses. If you yeah. have a, a modified adenovirus, then yes, if it's replicating and becomes competent, then yes, yes. you can bring the spike yes. protein. Yes, yes. And this, they don't look for it. There are hundreds of scientists dealing with this topic. They all get paid and they just avoid this question, asking the parents what, whether they were vaccinated, whether they got the jab or not. It's horrible. Yeah, now that, that seems to me to be among the list of scientific questions that I'm afraid we're going to have to mandate. Right. We have to mandate certain studies from, from yes. time to time. Yes, so yes. The, the people have, through representative government have to mandate that the studies get done by independent entities. This should be, is the task of WHO. This should be the mm -hmm. Immediately they should do such things. They no. will never do it. They don't protect no, 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 us. No, no, no. They no, kill no. us. I wouldn't trust the result from the World Health Organization more than I would trust the result from the CDC. So I've actually proposed a plan in the United States to replace the CDC completely. It yeah. sounds when I last year when I introduced it, people used to laugh when I said this. I'm not laughing anymore. It's called Plan B. Plan B is a very interesting reconfiguration. You mentioned decentralization. The mistake is to have public health research and all of this in one place that can be captured by pharma. <laughs> yes. Right. So what's the alternative? We, yes. we create we create nodules that are just geographically distributed. We write rules. You and your spouse and your second cousin cannot be under the control of pharma. You can't have any financial relationship with pharma. Your number one job and your only job really is to find out what's killing people and making them sick. Now, do your research and publish it. Don't work together. We need 80 of these entities doing this research. Now, they write reports, they publish them. <clears throat> they learn from each other through the peer-reviewed scientific literature. If any of them are caught 
being under the influence of pharma or under regulatory control or insider trading or making profit from their discoveries, the entire node is terminated. And then we create a new node somewhere else. We great, great idea. Right? It, it will we'll vaccinate ourselves against regulatory capture. <laughs> and then think about this thing, no patents on drugs. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's what IPAC is. I can't so now, make any profit from anything that I've so we just, we just constructed the new system for future. I agree. And you can look up Plan B. It's published in the International Journal of Vaccine Theory and Research and Practice. Super. I think that's that's really like a future. It's the future. So I think it would be great if you could maybe like, um, you know, all these studies that you mentioned. I don't know if we have them already or if you could like forward them to Corvin because we would also like to share them on the on the Telegram channel and maybe on some other in some other areas so people can can look at that. Wow, I mean that's that's been a lot of information, and it's it's great that you. It was also really interesting to listen to that. It's very, um, you know, like you presented it in a in a way so that also non-medical specialists can follow follow that uh, easily. So very very interesting. We should, um, yeah, we'll stay in touch. I think for the for the future developments and whatever. If you if there's anything of interest, please uh, send it to us would be very and good. Maybe you can get one first and last question. Yes, of course. <laughs> Thank you very much. Maybe also on Dr. Wodak. Um, in a very uh, early time, I thought this COVID stuff would come from a laboratory because we had uh, some special things like the transmission. It was higher, I suppose. And on the other side, we had this concerted action. So to get it together, it was the only uh, explanation that this is uh, from from the laboratory. So, um, if I understand it right, um, you both said that um, there's no real danger of another artificial virus because it's a question of surviving for a virus to to evolve in a, a less danger way. But um, at least if we follow the official narrative, what about HIV? Because we have this special um, constitution that it's. Uh, yeah, un undercover. Yeah, so yeah, ma maybe they can create it in this way, so it it uh, doesn't kill uh, at the first time, but after some years, it's getting dangerous. So maybe this is a real danger. Well, we have to speak about it more thoroughly with HIV, because there is also this effect with the drugs who are killing, and we it's very di difficult to distinguish who was killed by virus and who was killed by the drugs. Yeah. I have I had patients HIV positive patients that didn't take drugs and still survive, and um, they you know most of them get drugs. And I was in a ward where they where, where I met all those people having lymphoma and having all those cancers and having very bad diseases. They didn't even have the typical symptoms of HIV. They were just they were just getting ill from in the special ambulance. They were just getting ill from the from the consequences of the drugs they took all the time. Okay. It's um, so to distinguish this this is another story. When when Fauci is gone, we should start it immediately. We know a lot already, but I think there is a, a lot to be done and to find out in the files of all those people who are not who are treated and who are not treated. And to, to we don't have enough numbers. We don't have enough evidence for this. 
perhaps I, I don't know it, but perhaps there are some people who know it, but I, I don't know the evidence. But I, I'm very suspicious, and I, I, I now I was trapped also by this idea of a pro protracted uh, infection, you know, coming later, and in the meantime, you infect all the other people, which is very frightening. But uh, I'm, I know now that retroviruses are, are permanent guests. And uh, there are there are many things that uh, our body lives with. We don't we don't even know. And we we found out there are many similarities in how our immune system arranges with all those viruses, which are similar, and which we contact on the other hand, and and whether we can whether our immune system manages or not, it's too complicated. And I think we should. We should just trust on what we see around us with the people. Who dies? Who dies? Yeah. Who you is in the have... hospital? Who is in a, what is the most important disease? 80% of all cancers come from smoking. And yeah. all the heart on those heart attacks from those people eating too much and not moving anymore. And you see so many millions of people dying you could prevent you could prevent that and right. um, what we are focusing now is some stories we were presented by some fear mongers and i think we are distracted from what is really important yeah. to be honest i thought and hoped that this would be your answer in this way <laughs> but i wanted to hear it in, the, in your own words yeah so because of that i said if we believe in the official narrative of hiv okay. but i think also that's not the truth at all. So, so there's another answer to that question as well, which I think is a more fundamental answer, and so a simpler answer. <clears throat> um, HIV has a basic reproduction number or R naught of 1.09 if you if you experience serial monogamy, and it's between two to five if you are uh, you know have to have multiple sex partners. So the same exact message applies. And what will just happen in that question, and I'm really glad that you asked it that way, is that in our minds, we replace the horror of HIV infection that we're told by the official narrative with the transmissibility. It is so horrific under the official narrative, qualifier, qualifier, for HIV, and yet it doesn't have a transmissibility of 12 or 18. And if you try to modify HIV to give it high transmissibility so you don't require intimate contact, you would not succeed if it's as deadly as they say that it is. Now, that's independent of treatment, that's independent of other things. Also, you know, we locked down the entire planet specifically over COVID, most except for Sweden. Congratulations, Sweden. <laughs> um, very, very brilliant move. Um, but with HIV, if you know that it's circulating in your community, you can change your behavior. You can protect yourself. So we, you know, we have to be aware of the behavior modification. And and they get this wrong with HPV vaccination. The doctors in the United States that vaccinate <clears throat> uh, young adult females from HPV, they tell them, "You are now protected from HPV." Congratulations. No, they're they not. Get uh, and they get protected. and they get cancer because they think they needn't be examined anymore. They get they also get cancer because they go out and they have more, more multiple they have multiple partners they have unprotected sex. I'm not 
judging them. I'm just talking about these as factors. And uh, the doctors lied to them because they're not protected against the types of HPV that are not targeted by the HPV vaccine, right? So behavior modification is still an important public health tool that we have to recognize plays into this, right? The problem is everybody that I know simply wants to live their life. Tell me the shortest way for me to go back to normal and I'll do anything you tell me to do. And that's where they've lost their minds. And it's important for us to develop critical thinkers, people who are skeptical. And so if you want to take courses at IPAC-EDU, check out ipak-edu.org. Our registration for these courses closes January 31st for this semester. These are, we're not accredited. We don't care about degrees. We don't care about grades. Full semester, 15 lectures on these intensive learning experiences live with other people in the classroom with the great instructors. I'm just so happy how well it's gone. Uh, we, we're, doing, we're doing a brisk business now with lots of people registering from all around the world. So uh, take, check out those courses because we're teaching people science so that they are better able to participate in discussions like this in the public square. Okay. Thanks so much for your presentation here. It was really instructive. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to look also into these courses or into your website and and get more information. Thank you. It's been an honor. So, Thanks. So, jetzt, Vivian, Thanks so jetzt kommst du mit der Werbung für den Corona-Ausschuss. Naja, wir haben ja. eigentlich noch was. Wir haben eigentlich noch einen, einen Beitrag. Ja, wobei, also wir können den auch gerne verschieben, weil der hätte jetzt besser vorhin gepasst. Das stimmt. Ja, ja. also ja, ja, ich, wir haben das jetzt in a better way. Ja, yeah, we, we've kind of summarized it. Yeah, with your contribution. Okay, anyway, vielen Dank. Vielen Dank. Well, uh, my contribution, I, I meant that that can be um, postponed. Um, that uh, suits better. Well, uh, Wolfgang, your contribution for today was kind of uh, subsumed there. Yes, very good. I don't know how long we had planned something from uh, David uh, on the prosecution. That would be. Well, that would be another um, hour. That might be too much. Um, it would be going back to the legal aspects of it. So, yeah, you'll be here. Yeah, more if you'll have me. Now. Yes, it'd be good. Okay, thank you. Um, so I'd be happy to go to Greece as well. I, I heard you can go swimming there. Yeah, but for the while I come here. Okay, so I think uh, as everything took a little longer today, it was very interesting. And uh, I think also the legal stuff should be looked in in great detail. I think this is something that we have to stick to. I would say we have reached the end of our session today. And next week we'll carry on again and we'll find a new slot for your contribution. I think it's very interesting what you were going to talk about. That is one of the root causes of all these issues. So. I'm happy to have you here again and had well, you here. Thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, what else? Um, as we are now able to issue certificates um, for donations, and we got great support in the past weeks, and we have an overview of the structure now. That's going to be 
um, published soon, and we're going to talk about the expenditure situation, the cost situation. But it's important to keep the donation up uh, because we have some issues with the former member still going on, Rainer Filmich, that has not been cleared. And we are working on this. We want to clarify this uh, in order to set up the committee on a more sound financial basis. So in that sense, I think it's very important to look at these topics as well. Apart from that, I thank you all for listening and the intensive participation. <coughs> and I hope that uh, everybody uh, can take a lecture from this allegory of Dorian Gray and uh, maybe uh, do intensive good to save your soul. <coughs> In this sense, I wish you a wonderful Friday night and a 